You're listening to the Live Free Now podcast, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. Find us online at livefreenow.show. And now your host, John Bush. We wake up to a new normal today and life is slowly grinding to a halt. Now masks are becoming the new normal. Americans are facing a new normal, one that may include losing their jobs, losing their income, and even losing their health insurance. I don't think we get back to normal. I think we get back or we, we, we get to a new normal. It's time to reject the new normal. Now is the historical moments of time not only to fight severe virus, but to shape the system. It's time to reject the Great Reset. It's time to support the People's Reset. It's time for the Greater Reset. From January 25th to the 29th, journalists, activists, researchers, and advocates are hosting the Greater Reset Activation a five-day event dedicated to offering an alternative to the World Economic Forum's top-down, centralized, authoritarian vision. Our desire is to help all people find community and liberty by providing practical steps and knowledge for co-creating a world that respects individual liberty, bodily autonomy, and choice. The Greater Reset is the world's collective response to the World Economic Forum's initiative, The Great Reset. We invite you to join us for five days of discussion about the diverse opportunities available for those who seek to live in harmony with humanity and the planet while respecting our innate freedom. Each day is dedicated to a different domain and provides solutions to the WEF's vision. Day one is dedicated to the Agora and decentralized economics. Tuesday the 26th will focus on health and education. Day three will focus on nature, permaculture, and regenerative agriculture. Thursday the 28th will highlight the liberating side of digital technology, including encryption, blockchain, and decentralized autonomous organizations. On Friday, January 29th, we will end the event by showcasing examples of intentional communities, freedom cells, and community organizing. Don't miss out on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to hear from some of the most powerful speakers in the world with a focus on solutions. We encourage everyone to organize local watch parties in your area using freedomcells.org. Also, find out more about the Greater Getaway in-person event in Zihuatanejo, Mexico. Visit thegreaterreset.org for more information. All right. What's up, John? Yeah, what's up, man? Day three of the Greater Reset. Thank you, everybody who's watching at home and everybody here in person. How are you doing in Texas, man? I'm good. I'm good. I'd probably be a little better if I was in Mexico, Mexico with all those cool peeps, but um, I'm holding it down and super excited to be delivering another yet another day of The Greater Reset. I want to invite everybody who's tuning in to visit thegreaterreset.org. We have posted the archives to day one and day two on all of our float and library channels. You can find all the talks, including my talk, John's talk, and uh, all of our speakers from last night, including Dolores Cahill on our library and float channels. So if you want to catch up, feel free to do that. We're working hard to get that content out as soon as possible. And uh, yeah, man, I know that you had some thoughts on the World Economic Forum meeting today, John, that you wanted to share. 
Yeah, I just saw someone say plus 10 for Derek's hair in the comments. So I don't know if they're talking about my hair or Derek's hair, probably Derek's hair because it's pretty long and, and beautiful. But even my girlfriend the other day was like, Derek's hair looks pretty good. I was like, wait a second. All right. Why are yeah, we so talking about my hair? Why are we talking about my hair? <laughs> it's TMZ all of a sudden. We are here to to offer solutions and a response to the World Economic Forum's Great Reset. It's a marketing plan for New World Order 2.0, Panopticon Surveillance Society. And one of the themes that I'm noticing, because they're meeting right now, the 25th through the 29th, usually they meet in Davos, Switzerland. They're complaining that they're not in the snow and they're doing it virtual. And one of the big themes that they're pushing is the issue of trust. And it's clear that these institutions are losing trust. What institutions? Government, big government, big corporations like Amazon, for example, and the vaccine. A lot of the stuff that they're talking about, their sessions are building trust for this vaccine, this global vaccine rollout. How can they restore trust in politicians, in world leaders, in heads of finance, central banks? And it makes a lot of sense. And to me, it's indicative that they are scared and that they're concerned that they're losing their grip. So it's a paradox. While simultaneously, it appears as though there's all this tyranny rolling out. There's this massive technocracy being built. Right. We heard from Rosa Corey. We heard from Julianne Romanella what it's all about. Don't let that cause you to be disillusioned or dissatisfied with where we stand when it comes to the cause of liberty because they are losing their grip and everyone is aware of it now. And the reason why people aren't trusting these massive centralized institutions because we don't know those people, right? Everyone's all excited. A bunch of people are excited in the United States that Joe Biden got elected. We don't know Joe Biden. I didn't know Donald Trump either. But you know what? I know Derek Bros, know Jack Spierko. I know the folks in my local Freedom Cell meetup and my, the local Freedom Cell Network. And really, that's what it's all about. Trust those people that you know. Trust on a small scale. Yeah, John, I want to add before we bring on our guests that, as John said, the World Economic Forum is meeting today. They met earlier today. They're meeting this whole week. That's why we're meeting, so that we can talk about alternatives. We can manifest alternatives. But I do want to acknowledge that uh, our old friend Bill Gates spoke at the World Economic Forum today. They have also had the president of Russia, Israel, South Africa, South Korea. This is definitely a global movement all focused on pushing this idea of the Great Reset. So there's a lot of momentum, a lot of money, a lot of energy going into that. And that's why we're meeting. That's why we're, we're encouraging people to host Watch Party. We've had, we want to just share with you guys over the first two days, we've had 50,000 viewers from all around the world watching this and tuning in and Watch Party. So, and thank you guys who are here, everybody here in Mexico, of course. I think that's just really exciting. There's a lot of potential and I'm, I'm really excited about what we're doing here tonight, John, that what we're focusing on, we call today reconnecting with nature. So we're going to talk about everything from practical farming tips and, you know, homesteading and, and uh, talking about the potential for food shortages and some really important information. But I think it's also, for me at least, a spiritual reconnecting with nature. And I think for some of us, that's, that's one thing we're trying to make a part of this particular greater reset? How can we reconnect with the planet, reconnect with ourselves, and do so in a way that still does respect individual liberty, bodily autonomy, and freedom of choice, not a government-driven, top-down, United Nations-driven environmentalism, but a decentralized environmentalism. That's what you know we're here to promote. So um, unless you have anything else, John, let's go ahead and bring on our guests. We have a special panel for you guys today. I guess we should acknowledge, I know some people were expecting to hear Vandana Shiva. We were expecting her, but we haven't heard back from her team in about a week. We were hoping, you know, that she would 
respond after confirming, but unfortunately, we didn't hear back in time. Uh, we're hoping she will join us at a later date. But uh, instead, we're going to bring on our other three speakers to start with the panel uh, to do a real basic beginner look at what does homesteading look like, maybe from the city environment, from the suburban environment, from the countryside, and get some real basic ideas from our three guests. So, uh, yeah, let's do it. John, you want to introduce them? Yeah, I am super excited for this panel of guests to offer an alternative to what the World Economic Forum is all about. Uh, it's all about decentralization. It's about permaculture, regenerative agriculture, because we too are concerned with the environment. And I think we have a really solid lineup of speakers. We have uh, Jack Spierko, who is the the guy behind the Survival Podcast, super popular podcast. He's been doing it for quite some time. This guy gets tons of listeners and it's not just folks listening. He's built a really solid community and I've had the honor of being a part of that community. And more recently, well, actually a little while ago, Jack got into agorism and all these decentralized technologies. So he, he really has a great nexus between uh, freedom and homesteading. And we're, we're so pleased to have him today. Thanks for joining us, Jack. And we're also going to be bringing on Marjorie Wildcraft. Marjorie is behind the Grow Network, and she is on point doing some really good work when it comes to food production. She also has some excellent insights when it comes to economies and the potential for economic devastation and why it's more important that we're prepared now than ever before. So we're super excited to have Marjorie on board. And then Christian, the Ice Age Farmer, Man, this guy reaches a lot of people as well with a lot of amazing content, and he brings a lot of insights that people aren't really exposed to. And uh, I think he has definitely been sounding the bell uh, that now more than ever, it's important for us to all to be prepared. So we've brought together, assembled this amazing panel, and we really want to focus this panel on beginner steps things that people can do now, practical solutions, whether they live in an apartment, whether they have two acres, whether they have a backyard. We're going to ask some questions first, Derek and I, and then we're going to be going to your questions. And we're going to ask that you put them all in caps, whether you're a DLive watching at thegreaterreset.org or on YouTube or Facebook. Don't start dropping them on us now because they'll get lost in the fray. But when the time comes, we'll ask you for some questions. Yeah. Thank you guys again for being here. Can I get a round of applause for Marjorie, Christian, and Jack Spierko? <laughs> yeah, we are here in Zihuatanejo, Mexico, and we are happy to be gathered in person. So I'll just go ahead and start off with a, um, a real basic question. And again, we, want, we know that each of these speakers is going to follow this panel with sort of a deep dive of their own looking at different areas of this conversation today. So we'll get deeper in a moment. But let's start really basic. You each have somewhat different backgrounds and, and I think ways of going about your particular work, although it's, there's a lot of overlap. From your perspective, for our audience listening today who's interested in, say, permaculture, interested in uh, growing their own food and, and taking some of you know, their diets and, and their survival really into their own hands, what is a real basic beginner first step that you can offer for someone interested in stepping in that direction? Uh, let's go ahead and start with Jack. Oh, I would say where most people start is with a simple garden. And, and it is an incredibly powerful thing beyond producing the food that directly comes from it. Uh, I, I've been doing this a long time now, almost 13 years, and I've put together thousands and thousands of hours of, of, of instructional stuff that's free, video, audio, et cetera. 
but it all goes back to being a little kid that whose grandfather taught him how to garden. And we grew a garden back in the seventies and eighties, not because it was something that, you know, it was trendy or hippie ish or anything like that. We did it because we were poor people and we needed to be able to feed ourselves. So we ran about a quarter acre garden and my grandfather taught me everything from dealing with weeds to making compost to pruning grapevines and everything in between. But the bigger point is that that, that, interaction between that old man and myself you know now as an old man was a young kid was a seed just like the seed that you put in that garden and it it stuck with me so when i became successful in the corporate world and and had a big six-figure salary and uh it was entertaining clients in new york city and stuff like that i still had a little garden patch at, at my house up in pennsylvania and when i moved to texas you know i did that again and it was what pulled me back into the world that i'm in today so it is not just about the fact that putting in a garden will provide you with food. It is that first step, and it is, is that seed that you can plant, not just in yourself, not just for your own personal homestead, but in your kids. Because if what you're doing doesn't transcend down to your children eventually, and that doesn't mean they might not run away from you for a while, but if they're not coming back to it, you're not doing it right. And, and to me, you know, tonight I'm going to be talking about livestock, and I think that's an incredibly important thing. But the thing that everybody can do, even if it's it's herbs on a backyard, uh, uh, you know, porch in a, an apartment complex, is a garden. You can find a place to garden no matter what. Your your employer might let you have a little patch behind the building or whatever. There's always a way to do it, and I think it's the best place to start. Yeah, thank you for that, Jack. Appreciate that, uh, Marjorie. What would you like to say as far as first steps, beginner steps for someone trying to start taking their their food in their own hands? I definitely, uh, definitely have to agree that a, a garden is a great place to start. Um, and then I actually have a three-component system that we've been teaching people for years, and we have you know tens of thousands of people who have implemented called the Grow Half: How to Grow Half of Your Own Food. And it involves a small 100-square-foot garden and a flock of chickens, six laying hens, lays about 1,500 eggs a year, and then a small rabbitry with one buck and three breeding does. And you can produce exactly like it's more than 365,000 calories in a year. And you can do that in about less than an hour a day. Uh, and we call it the grow half system. And so absolutely, Jack's totally on it. Had the great starting points for a garden. And especially even if you don't have room for a garden, windowsill, community garden, roof. Um, and I would say the next thing, uh, since Jack covered that so well, would be a flock of chickens. And um, yeah, it's just astonishing how much those ladies uh, lay. This would be chicken specifically for eggs, not for meat. Uh, the amount of caloric density you get and the amount of nutritional density that you get from chicken eggs uh, is incredible. They're, they're also called pets with benefits. And um, similar suggestions to to Jack of, you know, if you've got a backyard, great. If you don't, there's tons of resources to connect with other people who do. Shared Earth is one website where you can connect with other people to, to share backyards or, or, or if they have land available. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of ways to do it. I'm actually going to be starting some stuff where we create growing quail for people who are in apartments and they're just like pet birds that lay eggs and then they're, they're also edible and you can also grow uh, greens for them uh, microgreens as to, to help with their feed and fodder. Um, so there's lots, lots and lots of ways to do it. Even if you don't have a lot of room, 
I love in the Austin area, they have the funky chicken coop tour every year where, you know, people in Austin. And I've seen the city of Austin go from, you know, 25 years ago where you were like weird Bubbaville if you even thought you wanted a chicken and like people hated you and there were ordinances and all that to where now it's like totally and completely accepted. And in fact, I said, as I said, that the funky chicken coop tour, it's embraced. The city of Austin will give you money to start a flock of chickens. There are many, many cities now that are starting to do that. And the main incentive for them is that you put less uh, food waste into the garbage system and the and the dumps don't have as much load on them. They find that people who are chicken owners recycle all those scraps by giving them to their chickens and, and creating compost. Uh, so I would say that, you know, in, in, in a, a really simple three-part system is, again, just what Jack was saying, a great a garden, get going, getting familiar with plants. And then the next step would be having some chickens. And then the, and then the third one would be working on a rabbitry. And you're going to generate a lot of calories from that in a very small space. Chickens are chickens are some easy livestock to manage. They just kind of do their own thing. Got to feed them and protect them, I think, would be the hard part from neighbors, dogs and stuff like that. But chickens are great. And you could trade the chickens. They're basically like little printing presses, much better than the Federal Reserve, in my opinion. Okay, Christian, uh, what would you offer up some beginner's <laughs> advice for some folks? Yeah, for beginners, I think the number one tip is just to start where you are. And so a lot of people are discouraged because they don't have enough space or they don't have enough resources. And uh, the bottom line is, that's all right. Wherever you are, that's where we are. And that's where we're going to start. So ultimately, the name of the game is to look at what you can produce and then evaluate what you want and what you need to eat on a daily basis and work towards marrying these two things together. Uh, but that process begins, again, where you are. And so most people don't have a lot of land. You know, I get this question a lot. What can I do? I'm in an apartment. I actually started my efforts and my channel when I was still in a small space in San Francisco. And so that looked like you know, an aquaponics system in a garage, a little tank of spirulina, which I don't do anymore, uh, grasshoppers in a closet, uh, just for uh, some basic protein production that you can do indoors. I would actually recommend mealworms because they're much quieter. Those grasshoppers got pretty loud. Um, but bottom line being that no matter where you are, you actually can get great results and get some traction, get some feel the virtuous cycle starting under your green thumb, uh, wherever you are. It just doesn't take a lot of space or resources to to get that traction. So bottom line is start wherever you are and um, start that process of learning. Obviously, all the skills that you develop as you start to work with the soil, you know, the five soil building principles, all of these things translate to the small container garden on your balcony or to, as Jack says, the garden in your backyard or if you finally get some acres. Whatever you learn, wherever you are, will ultimately serve you well in any environment. So Bottom line, just get started today. I think that's the most important message. Yeah, that's all great insights. And I think starting right away is super important. There's a lot of people that have like the survival seed bank in the closet. And they think that uh, if crap hits the fan, they're just going to be able to go out and produce a bunch of food. It's actually a little bit harder than it looks to go from seed to fruit, uh, especially I've never even produced corn. I've grown corn so many times, but I've never been able to take it to fruit. But uh, I'm, I got one more question and then we're going to go to the audience for some questions. Um, we like to focus on solutions, but let me just ask you about the problem with the intent of hopefully motivating those that haven't started their food production systems yet. Could each one of you share with us one 
world event or one phenomenon taking place right now that you think is the biggest motivator for someone if they haven't dug into the backyard, if they haven't gotten down on the food production, what is happening right now in the world that you think is a huge reason why they need to start like tomorrow? Let's go with Christian first. Well, I think uh, at this point, we've heard that the Great Reset includes the Great Food Transformation. And this is, I'll be speaking to this a little bit today. Um, this is their stated intention to take total control over the food supply and ultimately to use that to control people, to force the rest of these technocratic agendas down people's throats. Um, on top of that, and in order to actually force those things forward, I think they are engineering actively real issues with the food supply. I think there are going to be some engineered food shortages in our future here. And uh, if that doesn't motivate, you know, if you're not motivated by the fact that the food we're currently getting from big ag and big food from your stores is toxic and it's destroying the topsoil, you know, there's all sorts of problems we can enumerate, GMOs, right, uh, that we all know and are familiar with about the existing food system. If those alone haven't motivated you to start growing your own food, then I think the fact that we're witnessing a controlled demolition of those systems in order to fail forward into their lab-grown meat and their insect-based proteins really uh, really underscores the need for us all to be growing our own food and moving away from their centralized control, their, their centralized food production into a massively decentralized, people-driven, empowering food system. And so that's where we need to go. Yeah. And, and this whole food as a means of control isn't a new phenomenon. Remember, it was Henry Kissinger that said you could use food as a weapon in third world countries. Now it's just the same thing. But now they got the hardcore technology and technocracy to manipulate behavior. So uh, Marjorie, what, what do you think? What's some big world events or something that should move people to action when it comes to food production? Yeah, well, it's it's actually something that's been going on for decades. The Commercial food supply is not only toxic, but it's also devoid of nutrients. Uh, so there are charts that show the nutrient density of uh, fruits and vegetables dropping, dropping, dropping after every decade to where there's essentially nothing in them. Like you would have to eat 11 carrots right now to get the same nutrient density that your mom, you know, my mom gave me carrots back in, you know, 1965, right? The nutrient density has dropped so much. Uh, and rates of disease have skyrocketed. Uh, another little thing that people don't know is organics does not necessarily mean that there's going to be that much more nutrient density. They are not necessarily uh, more nutritious. You are going to not you're, you're going to avoid some of the anti nutrients like GMOs, and there'll be less pesticides and, and chemicals on it. But organic food is not really that nutritious either. So, growing your own food supply for the nutrition, because your body fundamentally, I mean, it's very basic, simple. If you don't have vitamin C, we all know about scurvy, right? Um, uh, you know, if you don't get vitamin D, then actually people who don't have enough vitamin D are very, very susceptible to all kinds of things. Um, and and, and it's, there's a direct correlation. So uh, nutritional density is super, super important. And you're not going to get that from the commercial food supply. And it really is, it comes from your own uh, backyard garden, your own backyard rabbitry, your own flock of chickens, where you're really focusing on building up nutrient density uh, in your soils and what you're feeding them. Um, it's it's really uh, your health. Your health is wealth, and uh, you absolutely need to get the nutrients, and, and growing your own food really is about the only way to do that right now. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's extremely important. It's all about the microbiome, right? And there's that connection, that interconnectivity between nature and the soil and the plant life and our own internal systems. And Julianne Romanello presented yesterday, and she talked about tax-exempt foundations manipulating education. It was the Rockefeller Foundation that brought this whole monocropping thing to fruition. They're like, it's going to help feed people, and we're going to help with food production, when in reality, they just completely depleted the soil. Uh, Jack Spierko, you got a knack for predicting things. What, what's on your mind when it comes to something t- that's happening right now that's a good motivator for, for getting, getting your hands in the garden? Yeah, I mean, there are people that call me Spearco Thomas or whatever, but less a prediction and more a uh, more just on the ground what's happening right now. And it, it looks like a prediction. That's that I don't predict things. I just see it already happening and talk about it before everybody else does is all. Um, there's a war on livestock uh, by environmental groups, et cetera. Let's say that, that Christian and Marjorie and, and Derek and John and Jack were all back crap crazy. There is no great reset even because it's a conspiracy theory, even though we know what's going on right now while we're doing this and it's on the front page of the world economic forum, it's all a hallucination outside of that. There's still a war on livestock. The environmentalists have had a, a war on livestock for, for over a decade and they blame livestock and animals for, all the environmental problems that we have as though livestock are why massive tons of uh, fertilizer every year that are on corn and soy fields are washing down the Mississippi river and creating a giant dead zone uh, on the Mississippi Delta in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, bigger than the state of Maryland. They act like it is cows and it is pigs and it is chickens that are doing that while they subsidize, uh, you know, milk and, and eggs. Right. Um, so what you're going to see is this pressure to have less meat that, that Christian talks about all the time, and it's going to be directly attacked from a standpoint of we have to for the environment, we have to for Mother Earth. When the, the, the single biggest thing that we can do to restore the natural systems that they destroyed with modern agriculture is take organic matter and put it through the insides of an animal and let them poop it back out on the ground like nature intended and remineralize our soils. And they're not going to do it. I'm going to say it one more time. You want a prediction? They're not going to do it. They're going to fight it. They're going to fight it tooth and nail every step of the way all the time. And that means everybody from the person with the small backyard flock or the rabbitry like like Marjorie talks about or the duck flock like I have up to the people that can go ahead and get themselves on 40 or 400 or 4,000 acres and run cattle and pigs and leader follower systems. We're going to have to do it. It's not just about feeding ourselves. The one thing these people are right about is we do have an environmental catastrophe. The problem is they created it and they have no plan to fix it. So it's not just about feeding ourselves. It's about fixing the world for our children. And you are not going to do it without animals. It will never happen with animals because biochemistry says so. And if you look at the systems that have been built on animals, they are the most fertile and the most regenerative systems we have ever seen in a human being's lifetime. And yet that's what they've declared war on. So the key is they've declared war on it, and you can actually fight back whether it's that rabbitry, that flock of chickens, or 50 cows. You can fight back with this, and it's very difficult for them to stop it. I can't give you a better reason. Right on. Yeah, that's pretty solid. And I think uh, 
I like meat personally, and meat has a lot of calories and protein. Uh, there are a lot of folks that take the vegan route, and that's that's by all means, that's great. But I think you bring up a great point, Jack, with that synergy with the animals and their their manure and how that helps with all the composting and, and all the, the micronutrients and all that good stuff. All right, we're going to go ahead and go to audience questions. Uh, we're looking at Facebook, we're looking at YouTube, and we're shouting out the folks that are watching live on the stream at thegreaterreset.org and DLive and Float because we can reach a lot of people through the big tech channels, but really we need to be, Jack will tell you about this and with his obsession with MeWe over there, but we need to be shifting our way over to these alternative channels because it's only a matter of time that we get pulled from these others. All right, ra- but let's start with the Facebook question. Rafael Fernandez says, uh, what is rabbitry and why would you do it? Let's go to Marjorie for this one. What's the what's the big benefit of, of rabbitry? I know that's one of your big fortes. Yeah, sure. Actually, it's a huge amount of nutrition. It's a huge amount of really high quality calories. And it's also a great source of fertility for all your other systems. So one buck and three breeding grows conservatively, uh, even in Texas, which has a very tough climate, I was able to get at least 75 rabbits a year from that. They're very, very productive. One rabbit is the equivalent of chicken. I mean, if every all your chicken recipes, you can use rabbit, substitute it. It tastes great. Uh, the other thing is, and this is not something we have done in a long time, but if you're my age or older, you remember that once a week, your mom would feed you liver. And there was a very good reason for that is a unbelievable nutritional density in liver. Um, Also, um, it's really simple and it's easy. The other great thing about a rabbit tree is you can, I'm pretty slow and I don't like doing it, but you can process a rabbit in about 15 to 20 minutes and that, and it, you don't need to have refrigeration. You, you can go get that rabbit, process it, be cooking it, feed it to your family, put it on a, on a, the leftovers in a pot on the back of the stove and have that as soup for another meal for the, the next day. So it's a completely small scale system. Whereas if, you know, if you tried to raise a cow, I'm going to tell you processing a cow is a lot of work, but uh, a rabbit is, is something that's very small. They're very quiet animals. A lot of homeowners associations don't, um, don't even have any regulations around them because they've not been popular. Uh, um, you can really have a rabbitry in in just a few hundred square feet in a yard. Uh, you can feed them, uh, put them out on grass. You can feed them a lot of your landscape clippings, which is it's a lot easier to feed them. Herbivores in general are going to be less expensive to feed than omnivores. And so, for example, you know, pigs like to eat the stuff we eat, uh, so they compete with us. But rabbits mostly like you know, grass and tree trippings. And uh, when you're pruning your fruit trees, the bark, so they don't compete with us for food. And they turn those sorts of things that would normally be a waste for us into protein and fat and uh, lots of really great nutrition. So, um, you know, super, super, super wonderful, small livestock that can easily fit in the backyard. Right on. All right. Uh, we have another question here from YouTube. I'm not seeing a lot of questions come in on the other channel. So, folks, post your questions and all comments. This one, we'll go ahead and go to each of you, and let's just do a quick lightning round. Uh, the Cans uh, Quatch from YouTube says, what are the best crops to grow in home garden? And, of course, it has a lot to do with the climate and the region that you're in. But let's just, each one of you guys, just fire off three, your top three, and let's do an emphasis on yielding nutrients and also simplicity for beginners so what are the top three let's go to you first christian 
Sure, I like sweet potato. Uh, my answer is that I like the crops that give you lots of lots of yield. So like sweet potatoes, they give you the vines. You've got fresh green, like a salad being produced because it's a vining thing. You've got greens coming off it the whole season. And then when you're ready, you pop this beautiful tuber out of the ground. And so other, other things like that, you know, beets, you can eat beet greens, a lot of those kinds of crops uh, where you get two for one, um, plus things that produce ridiculous amounts of seeds. I think there's a huge need, you know, we're, we're both talking about how to feed ourselves immediately, but in the near future, we're talking about how this becomes a seed to grow for the rest of the community. And so I think crops where you get massive amounts of seeds and you can become basically a hub, a little seed bank for your community are, uh, are real winners as well. Um, so brassicas are, are one of those that, that just gives you tons of seeds. Um, and then I, I have to just reiterate that it really depends where you are, obviously what you can grow and what, you know, like I said, what you eat is going to be driving what you want to get out of your garden. But um, where I am, it's very dry, right? California doesn't get a lot of rain. It's a long dry season. And so I've looked into what gives you the most biomass per drop of water. And sorghum is by far at the top of that list. It's also another one that gives you buckets and buckets of seed that I've got waiting for my attention over there. Um, so that's one that I've grown because I don't have a lot of water, but yet it gives me a lot of biomass, which gives me stuff that I can lay down for compost or uh, just to give me ground cover or feed to my chickens. So this is how I look for things that, given my context, maximize what I get for my effort and given my resources as well. That's my, that's my take. Nice. Yeah, those are some good uh, principles and strategies to go by. Marjorie was real excited to answer that one and jump on in on that one. Let's hear what you got, Marjorie. There's the classic three sisters garden, which is corns, beans, yeah. and squash, which uh, native to the Americas, all the way far North America, down South America. The um, corn has now been adapted to almost every bioregion. Uh, wonderful, wonderful plant that hugely productive. Uh, beans, again, very simple and easy to grow. And you grow the beans to where they climb up the corn stalks. And then squash, oh my gosh, you know, you really only need like two squash plants at the most. And you're going to have so much squash. Like there's a thing among gardeners about hit and run squash deliveries. Like you end up with so much squash that you'll take a bag of it and you'll be putting it on somebody's doorstep and ringing the doorbell and running away because you got to get rid of it. You know, there's so much of it. So, you know, corns, beans, and squash is the traditional uh, uh, three sisters garden. They grow together very, very compatible. You know, they have a great cap um, compatibility with each other and they're all super easy plants to grow they also the one thing i love about them is they all have big seeds so they're really easy to plant <laughs> right on yeah uh one that's always been easy for me to grow has been tomatoes tomatoes are really hard to mess up um okay there i am hey so uh all right jack let's hear yours but before you list your three jack can you tell us um you know planting a garden's like planting a tree when's the best time to plant a tree 20 years ago <laughs> 20 years ago and, the and next what about best, the next best time? Today. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, that's it's that simple. On, on my three, I'm going to cheat and do four because Christian and Marjorie both took mine, so I'm going to have to give uh, varieties. So on the sweet potatoes, I completely agree because you have a green. And I don't eat a lot of uh, carbohydrates. I'm very much a, a primal paleo keto type diet. Uh, and therefore, I'm not really interested in the tubers heavily. But, you know, through the winter, we eat some of those. The best sweet potato you can grow for the quality of the potato itself is the Japanese purple. And you'll find two different varieties. You'll find actually a, the whole potato's purple all the way through. The ones I'm talking about have a purple skin that's so thin that if you scrub it hard, you'll, you'll scrub the peeling off of it. The potato's golden. 
and it tastes like a buttered regular potato with when you don't even put any butter on it. They're fantastic, and I, they're called Murasaki, and I cannot recommend them highly enough. On the squash, I agree, but the concept that you'll just grow zucchini and you'll have buckets of it depends on where you are. If you live where there's a very prominent population of the evil, and I mean this is Satan's spawn, squash vine borer, you have this beautiful squash with these great big uh, vines, and they go in there and they eat the middle out, and then the squash plant dies. There's a plant called Trombacino zucchini. Uh, it's from Italy like it sounds, and it grows these huge long neck pumpkin squashes. When they're little, and when I say little, I mean a foot and a half long, they're basically a zucchini. When they get big, and I'm talking like four foot long, as big around as my bicep, they turn into a pumpkin, and they'll store with no refrigeration for months. And the squash vine borers can't get them in because they have a vine about as big as a small part of my pinky, and it's about that hard. And even when they get in there, they live anyway. They're like the honey badger squash. My other two are the ping tongue eggplant. Um, I grew that this year, and I have like four gallons of it dehydrated. It tastes fantastic. It's not like the nasty eggplants you get in a store that you have to salt and sweat out, or they taste like an ashtray. You can use them fresh. Nothing kills them, and even when the heat gets to them, they come back in the fall. They're fantastic. And then the last one's all peppers, I, and I'm just a pepper person, so I just grow tons of peppers. They call me the pepper whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> and they're easy to store. That's why I love them. Nice. Derek, you got a question from the audience? Right, guys. Yeah, I do got a question from uh, – we're going to pull one from DLive first, but I just want to say thanks, you guys, for being a part of this panel. People are really excited to get these – uh, these questions out and get themselves started. And it's really important, as Christian has talked about, and John, you were talking about the Rockefeller plan and others to control the food supply is a very real thing. And I hope that everybody listening at home, wherever you're tuned in from, is taking the, this opportunity to think in a concrete way about the steps you can take for yourselves. So one question, uh, we'll start with the, the, the simpler one. And we'll, I have two, two questions, if we can keep the answers as short as possible, so we can uh, get to Marjorie's talk after this. But I'll start with Christian, and we'll just go around. I think Christian knows the most about this topic, I would say. But the question was from DLive. Do each of the speakers feel the same way about the topic of the grand solar minimum? And Christian, we'll start with you. And how do you feel about that? How is that going to affect food supply? Yeah, I can't answer if we all feel the same way. Um, I <laughs> am aware, yeah, that there are solar cycles and that we've clearly been exiting some strong. The modern mix, uh, maximum has been going on for the last 80 years, and it's pretty common knowledge. Wikipedia actually displays it unambiguously that we've exited that modern maximum and what that means is that we're going to no longer going to be enjoying these stable growing seasons that we have been and that that all, all of modern agriculture was stood up during so it's going to get interesting a lot of agricultural analysts out there are in agreement that we're going to have to think creatively so to speak about how we uh, continue to feed the population going forward and again this is another reason that we should all be growing food right now so let's hear what jack and marjorie have to say marjorie would you like to answer now your thoughts on the grand solar minimum? Sure. Yeah, you know, uh, I get into big climates and I'm overwhelmed. Um, so I, you know, I'm not at all a climatologist. Uh, I think we're just going to have a hard time through, uh, whether the climate, you know, whether it's becoming a grand solar minimum or maximum. It, you know, we're going to have a hard time. There's so many things that are going on right now. So, um yeah, <laughs> get started. I think you need to worry about this month, this year, and, and not worry too much about, you know, 
what's coming forward. We, you need to get started right now. Uh, we, we saw empty shelves last, last spring. We see what I call thin shelves right now. They got the inventory all up near the front and then there's nothing behind it. Uh, and, and we're going to see empty shelves again. I'm already seeing all kinds of supply chain disruptions in my own business. We, we can't hardly get any inventory in and it's uh, right now this, uh, there's an illusion of abundance. So it, it, you know, regardless of whether we're in a grand solar maximum or a grand solar minimum, you need to start growing food right now. Thank you for that, Marjorie. Thank you for that. I think that's a really important answer. Uh, Jack, we'll go to you. Have you any thoughts or have you done any research in this area, the idea of grand solar minimum? Yeah, I'm, I'm very much in Christian's camp on this. Um, the the solar cycles in the, the 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 short and the long the macro cycles are as predictable as the tides. We we have massive historical tracking of these cycles. This is a thing. It is going to happen. And what I can say is, if you're if you're near fifty or a little bit old, older than that, like I am, and you remember what the 1970s were like in in the cold period where they had the cover of Time magazine saying an ice age was coming back. Look for your winners to be more like that than they've been for the past 20 years. Uh, that's, just, that's as simple as I can make it. And, and the, the good news is humanity's been through it. We can get through it, but it doesn't mean that you should ignore it. And if you live in Texas, like, like I and Marjorie and John do, you're probably like, well, okay, good. Give me some cooler winners. Um, however, I just want to point out that cooler winners in a solar cycle like this do not always result in necessarily much cooler summers. So you can still have the brutality of summer, the heat, the darth of summer in your southern climates, and then much harsher winters and and and, and much drier overall conditions. And I'm also with Christian that I think there's parts of Africa that have been very dry that are going to become very wet during this cycle as well. And that's going to have a big impact on flux in the whole economic system of um, the food production system. So, yeah, you need – and then back to Marjorie now get started now because this idea somebody mentioned a seed vault earlier where you're going to just have your seed vault and then one day you're going to plant a half acre garden i i know some people don't like mild profanity even but bullshit that's the only way i can put it <laughs> thank you for that jack thank all three of you. i have a one more question we're going to do one more before we go to your talk marjorie and this one i think is interesting and maybe somewhat divisive, but we don't want to keep it divisive. I think we want to keep it informative. And it has to do with uh, another question from DLive regarding the topic of, of veganism. Uh, I myself am a vegan. I know we have some vegans here, uh, but I'm also, you know, a permaculture, student of permaculture. And I think that there are some who believe that that this, this kind of creates a separation. For one point that we know the World Economic Forum's agenda, as Christian has pointed out, that they do push a, uh, a form of veganism that is very dependent on genetically engineered food funded by Bill Gates and uh, 3D printed food and these kinds of things, uh, as opposed to, say, a whole foods vegan diet or a whole foods diet that includes meat, whatever it may be. So I just wanted to get your thoughts uh, from each of you on, on that topic of veganism and how, if in your mind it does at all, play, play a role in this overall agenda and how you approach that topic from a standpoint of uh, sustainability, true sustainability and, and permaculture. Uh, let's start with you, Jack. So this is a touchy topic, and I'm very much a carnivore-based diet, um, but I also believe in freedom and liberty, and I believe if you want to live as a vegan or a vegetarian, go ahead. Um, 
and I can design a diet that's healthy with either of those paradigms. It's it's just harder. And I think you need to understand as a, as a vegan or a vegetarian, especially as a vegan, more than a vegetarian, that honest to God, if you want full health, you're going to be dependent on some level of supplementation. You just are. And that's fine. And, it, and that's okay. I don't think it needs to divide us. I do think that it is important to understand that the damage that's been done to this planet is not because we graze cattle. And, and as long as uh, if you're in that vegan camp, vegetarian camp, you understand that, then we're good. We don't have a divide. You can run vegetative-based systems to produce food for human beings, and you can restore the land. But I'm telling you, biochemically, you cannot do it without animals. That doesn't mean they have to die. That doesn't mean we have to be killed. It doesn't even have to mean that we have to eat the products of their production if you do not want to. Trust me, there's enough of us out here that will eat them that you can you can use them, and any surplus will take care of for you. To fix the landscape, you need animals. I know that might hurt some people's feelings. I'm not the one that made the rules. God, however you see God, made those rules when he designed or she designed or it designed or it accumulated as a, a thing that exploded into this world. This is the carbon-based system that everybody's so attached to. It has to go through animals. That's what makes it work. So veganism's fine, but if you're growing a vegan community, animals should have some part in that system for the fertility. I, I remember back when Marjorie did her first DVD that, that I helped sell on my show, she said in there, if I didn't eat meat, I would have the rabbits for the manure anyway. And I think that's the mindset you have to have here. That's great. Yeah. All right. Let's hear from Christian next. Yeah. Well, I think that was a very good answer. Um, and I do want to make sure we articulate the difference between like, I, I really, I don't care what you eat. If it's bugs or plants or animals, that's, that's great. As long as you let everybody else eat what they want to eat too, that, that free choice is the bottom line here. And when we hear from these agendas, from the Great Reset, from the UN, et cetera, that we must force people onto insect-based protein and onto uh, vegetable-based diets. And we have to end animal agriculture in the words directly from the CEO of Impossible Foods, which is, of course, funded by Bill Gates, right? These are the things that I have an issue with. Um, and so, yeah, I, and then I'll just echo what Jack said, that there is, you know, there's a huge role for animals on a homestead, even if you don't intend on eating them, they are a necessary part. And this is why they want to end animal agriculture is because if you don't have animals completing that part of the nutrient cycle, you know, in permaculture talks all about looking at the cycles, the flows of energies across a homestead or a, a at any again at any scale if it's a homestead or a huge farm like gabe brown's you have this beautiful elegant natural cycle of nutrients and, and energies flowing and when you remove animals from that you eliminate that cycle you cut a critical link out of the chain and so um so it's it's a and that would then mean that you're dependent on the petrochemical inputs or fertilizers again you, you become once again, slaves to the system that, that they're standing up here. So to be empowered, I think animals are a very important part of any homestead or farm operation at any scale. And that's, I think that's the more important part instead of quibbling about what you eat versus what I eat. Yeah, that's a great insight. And I think it just, just this question alone underscores how full of crap the Great Reset and the World Economic Forum guys are because they claim to be that they're all about the environment and we're doing everything for the environment and poverty when in reality they're working against the environment and they're working against the impoverished folks by depleting their soil and make it hard for them to access what they need. Okay, Marjorie, uh, how would you answer that question about the whole vegan debate? 
Well, I think Jack and Christian both did excellent jobs with the answers. From my perspective, as a practical person wanting to grow my own food, it's just easier to grow animal products. You absolutely need them, as Jack and Christian said, you absolutely need them for the nutrient cycling. It's way more efficient to have rabbits create fertility for you than it is to plants to compost those to create fertility. And you can do it. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but it takes a lot more time and energy. So it's a lot more efficient. Uh, one great example is, so if you have a garden, which you need to have multiple sources because we really are talking about diversity, like in anything, diversity is going to make you stronger. In your garden, you know, you've got to you water the garden, you've got to create compost and bring that to the garden. Sometimes you need to shade the garden. Sometimes you need to cover the garden when it's too cold or too hot. You know, there's you've got to take care of it. But if you have a, a flock of chickens that have a little bit of mobility, when it's hot, they go in the shade. When it's cold, they, they go sit on, on the sun. You have a little automatic water, they water themselves. You know, you set them up with a simple feeding system and they feed themselves. I mean, you know, it's so much more simple to produce 1,500 eggs a year with just six laying hens uh, than it is to produce that same number of calories using just a plant-based system. So from a practical perspective, as you in your backyard, and believe me, you know, the, the new currency that we are headed into is the calorie. And, you know, if you want it, growing your own food is like printing your own money. And, you know, highest quality nutrient-dense food is also going to come from uh, animal products. So, um, and, and again, I also agree with Jack and Christian, like, you know, I have no agenda on you know, what people want to eat. And I really respect and admire the vegans for the stand they're taking for, you know, what, what they're exploring with diets. Also, commercial animal agriculture is absolutely destructive. Um, is absolutely regenerative. So, um, you know, when the World Economic Forum says meats, you're talking about it in the terms of the commercial agriculture. That's absolutely right. When you do something like, you know, a permaculture system or your own farm system or your own backyard uh, system where you're cycling those nutrients, it's incredibly regenerative. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Okay. Um, I think we're having a little bit of internet problems there on your end, uh, Marjorie. I don't know if there's an alternative internet you could connect to we're having your talk next so uh um if that's not the case then i think we'll we'll just let the the heavens will grace us with the good internet for that part hey i want to thank everyone for participating in this panel i think it's been really insightful and one of the big takeaways of course is you know there's no better time to start gardening or growing your own food than the present and marjorie and christian and jack all reiterated another important insight that animals do play a really important synergistic uh, role in the health of the overall system, right? Which is a big permaculture thing. So, okay, we're going to be hearing from Christian a little bit later, and then Jack's going to be closing us down this evening. Um, looks like Marjorie is maybe messing with her internet. So uh, thank you so much, guys, for, for, for this panel, and we will talk to you guys here shortly, Christian and Jack. Thanks.
Hey there, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to this third day of The Greater Reset. Share the link with your friends at thegreaterreset.org. And I just want to shout out the volunteers that put together all of those awesome segue clips. It really adds to the production value. So thank you to all the volunteers. Thanks to Ramiro and everyone participating. All right. We have brought Marjorie back, and she re rebooted the net, it appears. So hopefully we got some good stuff going. And I just want to say, Marjorie... I've known you for quite some time. Used to sell that very DVD that uh, Jack was talking about at Brave New Books back in the day. And I, sure just, did. Yeah. I really appreciate the insights that you offer. And I think you, Jack, and Christian have one thing in common. Not only you guys walk in the walk, but when you talk the talk, you guys have a lot of really um, – really deep insights that I think are extremely valuable. And it's probably those insights that lead you guys to be so motivated and so active when it comes to the food production stuff. So uh, thank you so much, Marjorie, for joining us. And uh, we really look forward to your presentation. Nice. So, uh, yeah, so what we're going to talk about is some trends that are coming forward in 2021, uh, some things to look forward to. And the last one I have is really, I think, one of the most incredible and insightful ones that is something that the World Economic Forum or none of the, the, the globalists even have anywhere on their agenda. And it's something that we all have that's of immense powers. But let me get started with the first one. And that is uh, a combination of hyper-globalization and at the same time hyper-localization. So I think it's becoming obvious, super obvious that the, the you know we have the tech companies, uh, they're, they're a global entity. The the I think a lot of people have woken up that the media is a global entity. Uh, they're talking about a one world government. Whether that's you know that we're talking about a global, you know, there's more and more globalization is becoming um, a part of the consciousness of of your average person. I know most of us, especially Americans. We used to think of nation states like the United States, the most powerful thing on this nation. And now we're starting to realize, no, actually, the United States is not nearly as powerful as Google or uh, Facebook or some of these other entities that have a uh, different perspective. So we're seeing shifts in power. On the other hand, with the changing, the collapsing of the different systems we have with agricultural, medicine, financial it's going to lead to hyper-localization, which I think is an awesome trend. So that's going to be creating things locally, uh, really relocalizing our food supply because that's where it's going to come from. Uh, you know, transforming medicine and having it be medicine that comes locally from, say, herbalists or, you know, even local medicines that are made from plants that are local uh, manufacturing and skills trade, uh, really hyper-local, more bartering. Um, I'm actually already seeing it now. Uh, people putting, uh, getting food groups together where they, they join to buy together uh, in bulk um, 
or uh, more and more farmers markets spreading up, springing up, uh, more and more attention being paid to uh, small farmers and their local small farmers. So we're we're seeing it, and um, I I think it's awesome. I think that's something we've needed to do for a long time. <laughs> so we've got the greater reset going on. So hyper-localization and hyper-globalization, which are two forces that we're seeing as, as a trend in 2021, and we're going to continue to see that even more as events unfold. Um, another big trend is people are waking up to the concept that health is wealth. So um, I've, I've written a book, and it's actually it's coming out in May, uh, with uh, Penguin Random House, and they're like, oh, this is going to be a gardening book. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's not a gardening book. And I said, this is this book needs to go in the wealth section. And they're like, what? And I'm like, no, this is a book about wealth. Your health is your number one asset. And more and more people are realizing that uh, with, you know, with with everything that's going on and all this talk about viruses and, 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 and the awareness uh, of their health, right? There's been a huge shift toward it in 2020. There's going to be an even bigger shift toward it in 2021. And the idea that, especially as our monetary systems begin to crumble and shift and change, uh, what is true wealth? And uh, a big trend more and more as people are going to go, my health is my wealth. Uh, I, I guess one of the classic examples is, you know, the, the guy who has Buku dollars, millions and millions and millions of dollars, and he's an old guy, and he's but he's on an oxygen tank, and he's hooked up to an IV. You're like, what good does that do you, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> health is wealth. Another quick example of that is, you know, uh, as you get older, you go to your high school reunions, and in the early days, it's like, who has the highest paying job, and who has the most attractive spouse, and then it kind of becomes who has the best house, and 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 then toward the end, it's like, who is the least attached to the medical system? So health is wealth is another big trend uh, that is going to continue in 2021 and actually explode massively. And it's um, uh, uh, an awesome thing that we need to do because that is your, your health, how you breathe and how you move and, and how much energy you have is your greatest asset. It's more important than your home and your car, your bank account or anything else. Another trend that we're, we're seeing, and I mentioned it before, and I'm a Christian. I really want to give a shout out to Christian because he is following this so closely with the food supply. But we are seeing systems collapse. We are seeing a, a systems collapse of the food system. We're seeing uh, the medical systems collapse. Uh, it's going to be fun. I think this might be the year the U.S. dollar collapses. I don't know how you totally destroy the world's reserve currency. It's going to be interesting to see that. We're seeing economic collapse. Uh, we're seeing all kinds of systems break down. Um, so that is going to uh, completely be accelerated. And um, it, uh, grid, the grid, uh, I'm definitely thinking we're going to see some grid down situations, which will have people start to re that'll really hyper localize people. But uh, you know, our grid, especially here in the U.S., is 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 ancient and um, a lot of vulnerabilities there. Uh, so that's another um, system that we're going to see collapsing and breaking. And I know it's painful to go through these processes when we're going through them, 
but ultimately, these systems were very, very broken for a long time anyway, and we were completely on a on a on track for a, a disaster. So this is um, this is something that that is has been long due. And actually, I feel it's quite an honor to be alive during this time period. It's going to be challenging, no doubt, to everybody. But it's it's really a, 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 a an incredible time of of change and growth. And there's so much opportunity that comes with this. Uh, as our medical systems collapse, well, there's so much opportunity for for herbalists and and for growing herbs or for. Uh, you know, delivering medicine in a new way, having doctors come to you instead of you going to the doctors, you know, transforming and changing all these systems into into systems that make more sense. Uh, Food supply, again, uh, really becoming truly having a more local food supply, uh, having more people become more skilled in more practical skills. So, um, you know, tremendous changes coming and in 2021, uh, I, I especially think that the grid and then, of course, they've already been talking a lot about cyber attacks, on um, different inf- key infrastructure. Again, this is an amazing time period to be alive. It's going to be challenging for sure. We're all going to be changing. Um, one thing I'd really recommend you do is journal through this. Uh, get a journal, uh, just a notebook, because your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren are going to want to know, you know, what did you think? Who, who, did, who did you vote for? Did you vote for anybody? Did you not vote because you thought the whole thing was fraudulent? Or, uh, you know, what, what, what did you do to survive? One, one of my favorite books is um, Ersatz in the South, and it's a book about how, how the women on the home front took care while the men were off fighting the Civil War. And a lot of that came from journals, from just ordinary people who were writing down different things that were going on uh, in their in their lives, and um, super super valuable. And plus, your your I wish I had journals like that from uh, from my grandparents and, and great grandparents. I would would to love to know what their perspective on it. And your perspective is very valuable. So this is a, a great time to be alive, and definitely record it. Your your you. Old-fashioned pen and paper, please. <laughs> um, another thing that's that's a big change in 2021, and it's going to become more and more apparent as as the economic collapse continues to implode, and that is going to be skills are are more and more important than ever. Uh, carpentry skills, electric, you know, elect- electrical skills, um, growing food, making medicine. Um, you know, taking care of kids, uh, you know, um, again, the hyper-localization. We'll, we'll also start to see a lot of black markets or brown markets or whatever color you want to call them, but markets that start to exist, barter and trade systems that start to exist outside of the official currencies. Um, you know, lots of stories, uh, say, for example, during the collapse of Russia, where uh, the woman was a school teacher, school shut down. Uh, so she just opened up her living room and she started ha- taking care of kids in her living room and teaching school in her living room. You know, those kind of adaptions and those kind of changes uh, will be coming uh, and uh, skills. And you probably already have a lot of great skills, but think about how you may deliver them in a in a different way. But skills will become a very, um, a very important thing. And then, you know, 
I don't know how many people I've met, you know, that were software developers or whatever, and they always wanted to become a blacksmith, right? You know, or they always wanted to do, you know, follow that heart. And if there's some hands-on skill of something that you always, I've always wanted to be a beekeeper, you know, whatever it is, uh, this is the time to go ahead and go, yeah, you know, I really think it's time to learn that skill because skills are going to be super important and having several skills will be very important during this incredible time of transition. And the last big thing that I want to talk about in 2021, and I'm seeing this all over the place, and um, it's incredible, and I would call it, say, the power of intention. Uh, Some people talk about it as the power of prayer. I think that can sometimes get distorted because of some of the different religious lenses that we have. Uh, But the power of intention you have an amazing amount of ability to work with reality just based on your thoughts. Your thoughts are things. And people are becoming more and more aware of how they create their own reality through their thoughts. Uh, In the GROW Network, we have been doing a lot of experiments with, say, for example, people taking seeds and blessing the seeds and then planting them and uh, doing that versus seeds that weren't blessed and looking at growth rates and looking at vibrancy. A lot of home gardeners have done this. Um, Great story from uh, Stephanie, who's one of my favorite farmers. And basil, if you all know, basil is like a hot weather plant, like super hot. And she did some seed blessings, took care of her plants the way she normally does. She lives up in Colorado. Never did turn them over in the winter when you're supposed to in the fall. Just let the, the, the basil keep growing. That first Arctic blast comes in. Everything's covered with snow. And her basil are poking through the snow. Like, it's like we were like, we got pictures of it. It was amazing. Like, it's got a lot to do with the power of intention and the power of, of love. And the words do have power. So, for example, sometimes... Sometimes so I've got friends in all camps, right? I'm not political, but sometimes it's just fun. There's some people you go, Trump. <laughs> and their blood pressure goes up and their temperature goes up and they they get flushed in the face. And, you know, like, it's a thought. It's just a thought. Thoughts are things. Um, there's an incredible amount of studies of people that get together that focus thought and heart energy Uh, in a particular area, and it does reduce the level of violence, right? Um, There's there's all kinds of incredible um, thought and power of intention uh, type possibilities. Uh, Again, in the GROW Network, we, we are using that and developing experiments and developing ways as it pertains toward growing your own food and your own food supply, but it applies to everything. I mean, I've met people that just through thought and meditation have healed themselves of of stage four cancer or, uh, you know, created a house they wanted to live in or, and this is a, there's a big explosion of this. uh, I would call it an awakening on the planet now. Um, And I, I really feel that is going to be another big, big, big force that's coming in 2021. Uh, and if that's a path you're already on, I really want to encourage you to just do more of those practices and become more um, involved with uh, with that. So, um, you know, that's that's what I see coming in 2021. It, the, the food 
supply, you absolutely, I like to eat, you know, I like three meals a day, two is great, you know, <laughs> get, get your own food supply growing. It's time to do it right now. We live in extraordinarily turbulent times and we're already seeing the global collapse of the food supply. Um, that's going to definitely be something that's bigger. So that's my main message always is take care of that basic physical need. Um, and then, you know, um, do your best to enjoy the rest. <laughs> so that's what I got as the main themes coming for 2021. Oh, hey, it's me. Hey, uh, Marjorie, I, I think we, we, we have till 735. So why don't we take a few questions from the audience? That sounds and, great. Uh, yeah, great talk. And again, the insights and the ability to project what happens in the future. And it's not just insights or predictions. A lot of you've been predicting this stuff for, for over a decade now. And a lot of yeah. it rings true. Um, I have one question for you. Can you share a little bit more about what you think to, we can expect with the economy? and how people can prepare for that. I know that you've talked a lot about silver and sound money in the past. Can you just share a little bit about that while I go dig up some questions? Sure. No. So, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're I, you know, it's very, very clear there, there's this, whether we like it or not, this agenda of um, lockdowns, vaccinations, uh, shutting down the global economy, uh, you know, for example, here in the U.S. with Biden saying we're going to change minimum wage to $15 an hour, that's going to shut down so many other small businesses. You know, it's really hard for a small business to pay that kind of a wage. Um, so we're going to continue to see the absolute uh, slaughter of, of local economics, which is why we will continue to see. That's why black markets are going to develop. Uh, that's why people who are going to create systems that bypass all kinds of rules and regulations because it's too expensive um, I do. Yeah. Silver. I, I really, I'm just a huge fan of silver. I can give you a quick synopsis of why silver is such a great investment for anybody. Like really, I mean, even if you only have $2, go to the local pawn shop and buy a pre 1963 dime. It's 90% silver. Uh, really you can do it for just a few dollars, you know, up to hundreds or thousands of dollars. Uh, silver is actually way more precious than gold. Uh, there, uh, I know that's really strange and that's, that this is, you know, we all know that there are all kinds of weirdnesses in the world right now. Like people believe that airplanes can fly into a building and the building will collapse, right? People, you know, believe all kinds of stuff of viruses and stuff like that when nobody dies. I mean, there's all kinds of strange things going on right now. And one of the other strange things that is about to hit hard physical reality, and that is that there is much less silver, uh, above ground than there is gold. I think there's like in usable 1,000 ounce bars, there's only about um, 2 billion ounces of silver and yet there's 6, uh, uh, six billion ounces of gold. So it's actually more rare. Um, and they're really running out of, and the other thing is, is gold is not really used in many industrial processes where silver is used industrially. In a lot of places, it's antimicrobial. It's a really highly reflective mirror. It's highly malleable. You can make really, really thin things from it. It's really highly conductive electrically. It has a lot of great properties that are used in small bits, in all kinds. So there's an industrial use for it. There's uh, uh, an investment use for it. There, we've been using up more and more and more of it every year after year after year, and yet the price has not gone up. Um, 
I'm Theodore Butler has done a lot of great work over the last 25 years trying to expose uh, the absolute manipulation of that market. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, of course, that's the only reason that a commodity can stay at a low price when there's increasing demand year after year for it. Uh, they actually made money uh, by the, the manipulators are making money by keeping the price low using a short strategy. Uh, but it, it, they're they're really reaching the point where supplies are almost non-existent, and that the price of silver is um, going to have to correct itself, and should be valued at the price of gold, if not higher. So it's an incredible investment that um, almost anybody can do. I think Derek has a question from the audience. Yeah, I do. All right, thank you, Marjorie, for being with us tonight. We're here in Z Watsonejo, Mexico. We do have one audience member who has a question for for you. Sure. Oh, nice. Hi, my name's name Zaza. Um, I think the only thing we can really rely on, apart from silver and everything, 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 is ourselves. And um, one example I think that is really fabulous is how Finhorn manifested and what they do there, for example, growing roses in the snow with intention. Can you say something about that? That's exactly what I was talking about as the big unknown X factor that the, the, a lot of people just aren't paying attention to, that we have tremendous power. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up, Zaza, that, that the Findhorn was a great example uh, they were growing these amazing cabbages and huge vegetables, like beyond belief huge, and they were doing it through focused thought and love and the power of intention. And um, as I said, we've been doing some experiments toward that way um, with the with the Grow Network, which is is my community. Um, and absolutely, uh, there are astonishing things that 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 are possible that really start to delve into a, a, a realm that's spiritual. And we are spiritual beings, and we have a tremendous about, uh, amount of our own uh, inner power. Um, I've often thought, you know, what if we got a couple thousand of us and we all just decided to send love to Bill Gates or, you know, <laughs> Joe Biden or Trump or, you know, whoever our biggest, you know, people are or the World Economic Forum, you know. Uh, we can affect outcomes, uh, and and definitely the the power of thought and power of intention is is a whole uh, X factor um, that that um, I believe I've I'm already seeing it in so many teachers and so many disciplines and so many places coming up, and that is a big trend for 2021 of more and more people becoming more conscious of their ability to do that and and people coming together to do that, to to use the power of their thought and power of love to affect outcomes on reality that are actually a lot more beneficial. Love that. Love that. And that's exactly what we're doing with the Greater Reset. We've had four to 7,000 people that are tuned into the stream in various different places, and we're all putting that intention out there to the world and to make the world a better place. Uh, we have a question. It's, uh, can you speak to the importance of growing microgreens? Oh, yes, absolutely. So microgreens are great. Um, you know, basically, you just get some seeds and you water them. You don't even need sunlight. So they're really, really great. Uh, especially I had some folks up in Canada. Oh my God, why do you live up there? They don't have any sunlight. <laughs> They're living in apartments. And I'm like, look, grow a bunch of microgreens. Now you're not going to be able to subsist on microgreens, 
But as I had mentioned briefly in the in the panel discussion, you can have what we call micro livestock. Well, first of all, microgreens are great not only for you to eat, but they're also great for livestock. And let's say it's your chickens or your rabbits if you've got a yard and you're growing them there. But even if you're growing things indoors, such as quail, you can feed them these microgreens and cut down on your feed bill and make sure they're getting fresh greens. Um, I I love microgreens. I mean, they're they're so fun. They're so easy, so fast. You know, I mean, really, you can in five days have a whole bunch of alfalfa sprouts or clover sprouts or my, one of my favorites that are more substantial are uh, sunflower sprouts. Um, also, the, that's pretty quick side business to create. I mean, you know, there's there's you know there, there's lots of people that buy the microgreens, and you know, something that you can do really really quickly is become a microgreens farmer. Uh, just as a as a side income, so um, love micro. They're also super nutrient dense. Oh God, the life force in microgreens. You know, those young lives coming out. You get the vitality from them, so they're great. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, um, I remember meeting somebody at one of Jack Spierko's workshop who lost his job. Well, he was growing microgreens, and because of all the lockdowns, he wasn't he didn't have the restaurants to serve. So he's just started going direct to consumer, and mm-hmm. it's he's managed to make an income, an agorist income, counter economics, I should say. So that's super cool. Okay, um, I know that Marjorie, in addition to being an expert in food production and homesteading, you also do a lot of work in the area of natural medicine. So yeah. we have a question from the audience: What are your thoughts on colloidal silver? Uh, you know, I have not done a lot with colloidal silver. I know there's a lot of people who have. And, um, you know, the, one of the characteristics of silver is that it's antimicrobial. So it's antibacterial, antiviral. I know a lot of people who have had a, a lot of tremendous success using colloidal silver and apparently very simple to make, you know, just like a battery and some electrodes and you can hook it up and, you know, with a with a little bit of silver coin and, and create it. Um, I, I personally have not used it a lot. It's just because I have so many other medicines and I tend to prefer plant medicines, which is just my own preference. But I know a lot of people use it and um, and, and have, have had some great results from it. Excellent. Excellent. Um, I just wanted to share that... Not sure if I'm on the screen or if you could hear me. There he is. Um, if if uh, my Brave Botanicals, which is my company, we're also sponsoring the event. We do sell colloidal silver. So if there's anybody, Jerry Hubrig or anyone else that's interested, if you go to the greaterreset.org, click support our work, and then follow through with our little banner there, then we'll make sure that the Greater Reset gets a cut and you can get some high quality antimicrobial, antibacterial, antiviral colloidal silver. All right. Hey, Marjorie, man, you are just a wealth of knowledge and you're so sweet as well. So it's it's been a pleasure <laughs> knowing you. And I'm so grateful that you were able to present to our audience because you really shared a lot of info. Really good stuff. Thank you so much, Marjorie. Thank you, John. Marjorie. If I could Thank say, you guys. if I could uh, go ahead, go ahead, Marjorie. I, I do have one final point. And, okay. and John, you're absolutely right. I totally knew that this was coming. And when I first found out about it and realized what it was, I was a, I was a nervous wreck. I had I had panic attacks. I, I couldn't sleep. Uh, I ended up losing my relationships deteriorated as as I was trying to evaluate who would survive this or who wouldn't. And you know, I mean, it was really in this really really weird mental health space, which I think a lot of people are in now. That because this is happening, I want to tell you the way out 
is to do something practical and simple mm-hmm. and that's powerful. And the most powerful, practical, simple thing that you can do is start growing your own food. And yeah. whether it's sprouts or microgreens or chickens or a garden or rabbits or whatever, fish in aquaponics, just do it. And the connection to nature, the connection to creating something practical and useful, it will heal you. It will heal yes. you on so many levels. So please do it. Yeah, That's so solid. Good Thank info. you so much. Let's get a round of yeah. applause Thank for Marjorie. You. Thank you, John. <laughs> if folks want to check out Marjorie's work, the website is thegrownetwork.com. Thegrownetwork.com. Thank you so much, Marjorie. Thanks, guys. All right. All right. We're going to continue with the greater reset activation. Again, this is day three of six. We're doing five days here in person in Zihuatanejo, Mexico. We have watch parties all over. We want to ask you again, if you're following anywhere on social media, especially our Telegram channel, or if you have friends at home listening and watching, please send in your pictures. We want to share some more of those pictures from different parts of the world, showing people that this is an international movement that we're building here. They're meeting this week with Bill Gates and the heads of state, and they're talking about how to rebuild trust because, as John said earlier, these people recognize that the trust is broken and that people like ourselves, and maybe you've even noticed some family and friends who traditionally haven't been paying attention, are now ready to listen to you, or maybe now they're coming to you with questions. It's because there is a lack of trust going on, and many people are looking for answers. So we want to be a part of the solution this year. We want 2021 to be focused on solutions more than ever. And uh, with that in mind, we're going to continue the conversation. I want to welcome to the stage a man that I think is doing very important work. I know that his name and his channel, Ice Age Farmer, has really blown up over the last year. Many of you have probably heard of it and some of the reports he's been doing. I think he's doing some essential work, both talking about the Grand Solar Minimum, as well as the expectation and the maybe uh, kind of purposeful food shortages that we might be facing. So we're going to hear about that and more. We're going to hear about the greater food transformation. Please welcome to the stage, Christian Westbrook. Thank you so much, Derek. And thank you all for being here. It is a real honor to be speaking with you and sharing the stage today with Marjorie and Jack, two of my heroes for a long time, even before I started the channel, and uh, more broadly with all of the voices this week and coming together to to really respond to, to set an intention and respond to the great reset that the technocrats have in mind for us. Um, I don't like to focus a lot. You know, I don't like the, the doom and gloom. And we, you know, we just heard Marjorie talking about how our thoughts manifest reality. So it wouldn't make a lot of sense to pay much attention to these crazies, except that when we set that intention, you know, I can intend to get a million dollars tomorrow, but that's just not going to happen. So our intentions and our dreams have to be grounded upon a deep understanding of what's really going on in the world or else they're not going to land there. And so to that end, we'll speak briefly about what I see going on um, and uh, and then get to the, the good part, which is how do we respond to that? Because, you know, the, just as the, uh, the Great Reset includes what the UN and others are calling the Great Food Transformation, I think our Greater Reset must include, and that's what this conversation now is about, the greater food reset. Food, after all, is is fundamental. We all eat every day. And uh, so we need to address this so that we can actually have the rest of these conversations meaningfully about currencies and schooling and the future we want to leave, to build and leave to our children. So the greater food transformation in in that light is the, uh, the transition to a decentralized food production and emergent empowered food system. And 
when I say it's a transition to it, I really mean it's a it's a transition back to that decentralized model because that's after all the way humanity has always worked, right? Is we all just grew food. It wasn't until relatively recently that we started getting food from these multinational companies with their weird, terrible, earth-destroying, health-destroying uh, practices. So how do we move back to that? But I, I still think it's fair to call it a, a greater food transformation because uh, transformation is fundamentally about consciousness. And that's that's why I think we're, we're still going through a transformation here. So briefly, let's, let me pull up um, a couple things because I want to make sure that we see um, some of the some of the ideas and the people and the logos and the catchphrases behind the great food transformation, the things they, the technocrats, want to wish upon us. And so, as I mentioned, the UN has been for some time um, talking about the need to totally transform the human diet to get people to stop eating meat. A lot of this came out through the IPCC reports about global warming and cow farts, right? We've heard the case, sort of the foundation for this case be laid for a long time. Um, uh, they want to eliminate animal source foods. So not just meat, but anything that comes from animals uh, and move us towards insect protein and lab grown meat. And uh, a lot of this was uh, codified towards the end of 2019 when the Eat Lancet Commission, which is the, the joint venture between EAT which openly describes itself as Davos for food, uh, joined forces with the Lancet Commission, which is a longstanding healthcare, medical care, health sort of an organization. You've heard their name mentioned plenty of times in the coronavirus uh, stuff. Joined together, and they formulated what they called the planetary health diet, which is uh, what they describe as what we all need to eat in order to be able to feed the growing population within planetary boundaries is sort of their catchphrase. And of course, the World Economic Forum jumped on this and they published articles. This is what we all need to go to is this planetary health diet in order to save the world. They really don't. They're not very subtle with their intentions here to uh, to force this upon us. And they tie it in with the Agenda 2030, the UN Sustainable Development Goals and um describe it as, yeah, as the 21st century great food transformation. So the Eat Lancet diet, in that report, they actually used this phrase that really stuck out to me, because again, this is in late 2019, and they announced that food is the single strongest lever to optimize human health on the one hand, and environmental sustainability on earth on the other. And so during the course of 2020, you know, we, of course, we had the pandemic, this huge human health crisis, and then they're now calling global warming uh, existential crisis as well. So both of these areas are the global problems that they have concocted that they're telling us are, this is why we have to save the earth, right? And uh, global problems require global solutions. We actually heard Rosa on Monday talk about they, they need these big earth scale problems to justify the global governance. And so these are the two things that, uh, that they're telling us. In fact, they told us in advance of the pandemic uh, would be necessary and that food is the key to, uh, to solving them. And they intend to pull that lever. And what that means is they're taking control over the food supply. As 2020 played out and uh, the pandemic sort of gave them cover fire, we saw all of the agendas of the technocrats blitz forward at breakneck speed, including this great food transformation. The Rockefeller Foundation released something they call Reset the Table, which is 
uh, describes a series of things necessary to do. But again, you can see right on its face, they call it a complete fundamental transformation of the food system. So in the U.S., the Rockefellers were describing uh, one of the key things they did here was say, well, now that we've got this pandemic, it turns out that human health is really it's important what you eat. It turns out it's important what you eat. We were kind of wrong with our Rockefeller Green Revolution, where we just pumped out empty calories and depleted the topsoil. So now, in the name of public health, we also have to take control of food. And they married these two things together to uh, to justify the, the medical martial law extending into control over the food supply and, again, control over what we eat. So in the U.S., the Rockefellers described it as resetting the table in the EU Exact same Agenda 2030 style language. They described it a farm to fork strategy. And then just in December last month, Barilla, the Italian pasta company, combined both of these these names into their resetting the food system from farm to fork, which was a you know a series of private public partnerships. And they have a, a food think tank, which is called appropriately food tank. Uh, and so it's it's all of the same sorts of things that we see across any of these agendas, but applied directly to food and to taking control over it into these multinational companies and these global organizations. Barilla was very clear. It was not hidden at all in, in the CEO's opening remarks. He said, what we're doing today is setting the stage for the UN's World Food Systems Summit, which is actually happening in a few days here. They just opened up their their conference boards a couple days ago, and I signed up to see what's going on there. Uh, and the UN's World Food Systems Summit is, like all of these things on their sustainable development goals, uh, launching right now to sort of set the course for what they're calling the decade of action. This uh, lead up to the 2030 milestones that they've set for a number of these agendas, absolutely including food. And uh, they were pretty clear that we should expect to experience vertigo as we go through these rapid changes in the coming years. Um, and I will just mention briefly this report from a company or an organization called AgriWatch, where they were able to trace um, the, you know, the person that's heading up the UN World Food Systems was put into that position based on a series of recommendations from 12 people, 11 of whom literally take money directly from Bill Gates. So they, I thought this was a great example. You know, we know his influence uh, of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation money is all throughout a lot of agriculture, and he's running projects that uh, try to take control over the genomes of seeds. This is called his Ag One uh, program. Vandana Shiva, uh, I regret that she didn't make it today because she is, you know, in her oneness versus the one percent book, very actively calling out Gates and even the Rockefellers as this new Green Revolution 2.0 that is, yeah, that is taking control over the genomes of uh, all of the heirloom genetics seeds on earth and then using CRISPR modifications to take control over it and patent it. Really, they're, they're taking ownership of God's creation and then selling it back to us. And it's astounding what's going on. So let me stop sharing and, um, and then say, okay, I think we've focused enough on these crazy people and what they're doing. But if we don't understand that these are their goals and that they seek to uh, not only create these fake synthetic foods and force them literally down our throats, but also to preclude us from growing our own food. You know, we heard uh, Spierko say that there's a war on livestock, on animal agriculture. I've, I've mentioned the Impossible Foods CEO, again, funded by Bill Gates, 
um, open mission statement of that company is to end animal agriculture. And we talked a little bit earlier about why I think that's their goal. But suffice to say, um, it's not just we, we unfortunately can't just grow our own food and then think we're going to be safe. Part of the greater food transformation that we're describing today has to be um, protecting, you know, f- fostering and protecting from these technocrats our ability to grow our own food. And so I've now spent years looking at this agenda and their goals and the future they want to bring. And I thought, and I thought, and I thought about what, what do we do? How do we do this? And I thought, and I thought until I could think no more. And finally, my wife said, what are you doing, Christian? You know, the great reset, the greater reset, it's not going to happen here. The greater reset happens in the heart. And I think she nailed it. I think she's exactly right. We've heard a lot of that this week. And so what needs to happen as we return to our understanding of ourselves, all of us as powerful beings who can, cre- who can imagine new solutions and, and bring them to creation in the world is, uh, is we step back into that role. We, we take our power back. And as we do that, and as we start growing our, our own food for our families and our communities gradually, it will organically, so to speak, it will organically happen that a new food system emerges from these efforts. Um, fortunately, that's also the only rational response to what's going on, to their efforts to create a centralized, controlled system is to decentralize production, is to do the opposite of that, right? So when we decentralize production, and that's again, what's what we have always done up until relatively recently was we all grew a little bit of food, then uh, yeah, this new emergent food production system uh, is created. So yeah, we all grow food. And now I want to talk a little bit about how we do that, what that looks like, starting from the individual level, which is where we have control, right? That's our sphere of control, our sphere of influence. And then thinking a little bit about um, what that emergent system looks like, how it all fits together, and uh, and where we go from there. So in terms of growing food, um, how do we do it? The, the decentralized food production system, again, it's traditional human ways of doing things. It feels good to grow your own food. It makes more nutritive food. Uh, it restores also our spiritual connection, I think, to, to the earth and to cycles and th- is forces that are bigger than we are. And it also connects us again to our food, right? We're not just buying soylent green from the store. We're now uh, having an experience and a story of the plants and the animals that we're working with. Uh, Fukuoka Manitoba, who wrote one straw revolution actually on his farm he keeps there's no electricity there and he keeps anyone from bringing their devices or anything onto the farm because he says that farmers need to be highly attuned with their environment and with the energies and the cycles of the farm and these uh these devices and even electricity just desensitizes you so i thought that was pretty interesting um the other thing that's that's great about growing your own food is one of, one of these quotes from uh, Jeff Lawton, who says, I'm sorry, from Bill Mollison, actually, the other uh, permaculture guy, who says that there's something inherently seditious about permaculture, isn't there? Because you can't control a man who doesn't need you. And of course, we know from Henry Kissinger that if you control food, you control the people. So they totally intend on using food to take control of humanity. 
And all of this underscores the need for us all to start growing food. So how do we do that? Um, I mentioned in the roundtable, the, the really good news first, there is no one prescribed way to feed your family. There are a myriad number of different approaches and things that you can do to create nutrition for your family and to feed yourselves. Um, I've made a point on my channel, the Ice Age Farmer channel, to connect with different people, including Marjorie, from whom we just heard about her three-part system to grow half your food, uh, Gabe Brown, who's a regenerative rancher in North Dakota, um, a Hopi dry farmer named Michael Kotutwa, who is able to grow all the food he needs, even though he's only got one monsoon season and then a huge dry season in, uh, in Arizona there. And all of these people are really, and you know, uh, Jack Spierko is going to talk to us about aquaculture and aquaponics. And so there are really smart people who are thinking about this problem and they're reaching different solutions. They're getting to different places. And again, this tells us that, uh, that there is no one box that we need to check. This is how we do it. And as I mentioned earlier, the where I think this process can start for each of us is to sort of take an honest look at what we want to eat and what we need to eat, and then think through where we are, whether we're in a dry climate or a, a you know cold climate, whatever the uh, the context of your homestead is, what can you grow there? And then again, gradually work to bring these two things together. How, how do we meet these needs given what we can do? And there's, there's not going to be one single way to do it. Um, one thing that I do think, though, is universal within that framework is the, uh, the five principles of good soil husbandry. So I'll come back to those in a bit here. And I'm not going to go too far into the growing food aspects here because I've got Marjorie and Jack Spierko on either side of this talk focusing on that. So, and there's plus, there's plenty of amazing resources on uh, anywhere on the internet or YouTube, but, but let's get off YouTube. But uh, anywhere you look, there's tons of fantastic books, right? This is something that there's just a wealth of resources out there and you just need to start looking around. Um, but I do want to say that seeds are an absolutely critical part of this equation here. Seeds learn, plants learn. And when you grow a crop, in your locale, it actually adapts and it learns a little bit. Matt Powers, who's an, another permaculture teacher that I've interviewed on my show, um, tells us a story about getting some, some Hopi corn from South America where they have a very long growing season and trying to grow it in California, which also does, but somehow the corn still didn't have enough time to, to get to, uh, to bearing you know, kernels on most of his plants. But there were a couple here or there that just barely eked out a crop. And so he saved those seeds. And the next season, he planted them. And that year, all of the corn came to maturity and yielded fantastically. And it cut like two weeks off of the growth cycle of that corn, just by virtue of the fact that it had already been there for one season. It had already struggled and learned that things happen a little bit faster in California than they did wherever the seed was grown previously. And this is true of, of any plant, of any seeds that you find. So rather than just buying seeds from a seed catalog that come from you know Missouri, and then you have to go through this adaptation process, take a season or two to get them up to speed with where you are, I think it's absolutely a jump start to go find your neighbors who are growing 
food already and ask them, you know, because if they've got seeds, not only can they, I'm sure they'll be willing, they'll have so many of them, they'll be willing to share those seeds with you, but they come with a story. Oh, these really like shade in the afternoon or these, you know, were really thirsty during the summer months. They can tell you so much information and context that you don't get when you just order seeds online. Seeds are uh, true wealth. A few other places you can find seeds locally, and that's that's the real emphasis almost across the board here, but but especially for, for seeds that have already learned, and, and you can benefit from that. Uh, from your neighbors, from seed libraries, a lot of public libraries have you know card catalogs that have been repurposed now as, uh, as seed collections, and you can go borrow a few seeds and then take them back at the end of the season. You can find seed swaps going on in your area. You can connect with the, uh, the state schools will have often local county ag extensions. And a lot of those will have seeds that you can have for free to start, not to mention programs where you can get uh, financial help if you want to build a hoop house. There's a lot of resources at those state ag extensions. So definitely connect with people there. Look for master gardeners clubs. Um, although some of those guys are using glyphosate. So you still have to use your discernment as with everything in life. But, uh, but from any of these places, you can get seeds and stories that uh, that are that are so much more robust than you do if you just go to you know certainly if you go to Amazon.com and start clicking around. So um, so I wanted to really emphasize that because seeds are everything. Seeds are wealth, and the other thing that uh, that emphasizes this for us again. Let's look back at these these technocrats and what they're doing, and uh, and what they have been doing for generations is buying up all of the seed companies and consolidating these, these genetics into now it's just Monsanto and Syngenta and these big seed companies that own it all. And they want to license it out. And this is what I mentioned, Bill Gates and ag one going out and sucking up all of the genetics from all the indigenous farmers across the world. So they can turn around and sell them patented seeds. So their actions there inform us that there's something really valuable about seeds. That's why they want them. And that's why we should uh, save them and and stay with them. And I think that, uh, you know, we could get back to a point. It used to be like this, and we can get back to a point where, um, where you know, I can say, oh, these are your great uncle's golden beets, and this is your grandfather's kale, or whatever it is. That's where a lot of these heirloom varieties have crazy names, because they come. That's part of their story. They come with names of the people or the, the places or whatever that... Uh, that uh, that those seeds, you know, their providence, where they came from. And after all, when people came to new places, you know, uh, wheat was brought to Canada. Uh, seed, potatoes were brought across the frontier in the West because that's part of being human is you have to eat. And so people would bring the seeds with them. And so all of this really just to underscore how important seeds are in this, the greater food transformation. Animals as well. Again, you can look at the technocrats. They're trying to end animal agriculture. This can inform us that animals are important, not to mention just common sense. Like I mentioned earlier, animals are a very critical part of running a homestead. Even if you don't eat them, you need that link in the chain of the nutrient cycle to uh, to keep the nutrients flowing through your site, whether it's just an aquaponics system in the fish in there, or it's a small scale homestead, or even up to the big farm like Gabe Brown, where he's running, you know, herds of cattle across his land and letting them drop manure to 
fertilize the pasture and keep everything running and producing there. Without that link, you become dependent on fertilizers and external inputs. And uh, again, you're, you're then dependent on the system. And it is that dependence, which is our vulnerability. So I think that's why uh, the attack on livestock and animals is going on. And that's why we need to think about raising animals. So wherever you are, again, look at your context and figure out what would work where you are. If you don't have much space, that might speak to the rabbits or the quail, like Marjorie mentioned. Uh, if you do, you can start looking at some chickens or goats or alpaca. If you want some uh, some fur to look at, even fish, whatever aligns with your needs and your context, give it a go. And uh, right now I'm working through chickens, chickens and rabbits, chickens for the eggs and uh, rabbits for the meat. And I will tell you that it's very informative when you raise your own meat for protein because you connect with it on an entirely different level. You want to really make sure that you give these animals the absolute best life that you can. Because if and when the time comes that you're looking at that animal and saying, okay, this is this is the end of the road for you, then you really want to know that you have done everything you can to give them absolute um, comfort and even luxury. And this is just the way that that part of the story ends. So this is part of building a more conscious food system. And then even with the animals, uh, as with yourself and with your homestead, you go through this, this uh, exercise of self-sufficiency. Well, earlier, I was just buying eggs. Then I got some chickens and I was buying feed for the chickens. But I was still going to the store for the feed. So maybe I'll plant some barley and rye and uh, grow some fodder, maybe microgreens to feed my chickens. Okay, that's great. But now I need those seeds. Okay, so you just keep iterating. Now I need to save, grow some of those things, let them go to seed and save those seeds so that next year I'll be able to create and keep this cycle running. And uh, you just keep iterating like that on everything. How do I remove my dependencies on external inputs? You do that for everything. And you do that for your homestead as far as you can. And at some point, it ceases to be pragmatic to, uh, to you know, you, you just can't do everything yourself. And that's where, you know, again, going back to the talks we heard on Monday, that's where you start looking at, okay, how do I, as a unit within my freedom cell or my neighborhood, whatever you want to think of this as, uh, how do I do the same exercise? What do we need as a group to keep this running? And then what do we need as a community? And if I'm growing chickens and they're growing alpacas and I can get milk from the dairy goats next door, how do we as this, now this, this unit, um, do the same thing that I was, the same exercise that we described as a homestead. Uh, and then ultimately you're looking at doing it like a state or even a nation level. There is a point, right, at which you get to some core things that just, it's, you know, like a salt block, like I don't have ocean nearby. And so that's where you start to say, well, maybe we do need to interact with people who are hundreds of miles away. That's why I love some of the conversations about hierarchies. And I don't mean hierarchies like leadership and, you know, people telling you what to do. I mean, hierarchies of units and self-sufficient units uh, building upon each other and with each other and uh, working to get that sea salt over further inland, trading for eggs, whatever. However that looks, that's a conversation we can have as these things are materializing. So uh, yeah, so we've talked a little bit about permaculture and this idea that we're building regenerative systems. But um, now what happens if we start doing all of this? What happens as individuals around you 
start uh, becoming more self-sufficient, producing more of their own food, uh, trading for the parts of it that they can't do given their space or resource constraints, whatever, uh, then all of a sudden you get to an emergent, regenerative, distributed food system. It actually happens more quickly than, than you might think. And that's a good thing. Um, you don't need corporate inputs. We've cut them out. We've cut out our dependence on them. We don't need petroleum-based fertilizers. We're not using mass monocropping. We've gotten away with, thank goodness, those disgusting um, CAFOs, right? The concentrated animal, the factory farming. It is a, I don't even have words for how horrendous those things are. But we can't point at that and say we need to end animal agriculture, which is what they're doing. Of course, they're blaming, they're pointing at the things that they have created in saying we need to stop eating meat. Uh, no, we need to put them out of business. One of my favorite quotes from Marjorie is, if only one third of us had chickens in our backyard, we would obviate the need for factory farms of chickens laying eggs. We just, we'd walk away from it. We wouldn't have to change the laws or petition them or you know, do any corporate govern? No, we just we just walk away from it, and that is that is a real uh, greater food transformation, as I see it. Walk away from these things. No need to fight them, which would just empower them. We just create a better alternative. Um. So the uh, the greater food transformation, particularly in light of some things I don't want to focus on tonight, but yeah, I think there are engineered food shortages at play right now in order to uh, ensure that people are forced into succumbing to the agenda for fake food and lab-grown meat and all these things. It's also tying into the attack on livestock, because right now we're seeing some real problems with soybeans and corn, which all, of course, goes, a lot of that goes into animal feed. And if people can't feed their animals, then uh, then this also spells the demise of animal agriculture. So there's a risk that um, this greater food transformation will be a, a bit of a rough transition. And that's why I think we need to think about how we can accelerate this transformation. How do we quickly rebuild the human food ecosystem? Because that's what it is, right? It's a bunch of uh, units and people and families and communities growing their own food and working together. It is an ecosystem. And uh, so actually I did the same thing. I thought and I thought and I thought, and it wasn't until I sort of, I did a meditation and it sort of came to me that humanity itself is a damaged ecosystem. You know, we talk about regenerative agriculture and these principles of soil management and all these things that we can do to take a damaged site and breathe life back into it and start the virtuous cycles of creating more organic matter and rebuilding the soil life. Um, that's exactly what we have to do as humanity. We are a disrupted ecosystem. We've been disconnected from nature. We've been divorced from our neighbors and cut off from the resources we need to feed our families. So I, I started wondering, what happens if we map all of these principles, these regenerative agricultural principles, onto this idea of our new distributed food system, our emergent food production? Um, it is, after all, the most rich ecosystem, the most robust, resilient uh, thing that I can imagine is soil. And so what are those five soil principles? How do we, to borrow a term from them, build back better as humanity? And I'm going to go back to, not to Bill Gates, but 
to this list of the five principles of good soil husbandry. Because these are, I mentioned them earlier and I want to hit them now because I do think they are fundamental. Again, they work on any scale, whether you're talking about protecting the life in an aquaponic system or in soil that's in a small container garden on your garden, windowsill, whatever, uh, all the way up to a garden in your backyard or even a huge operation. These are uh, remain true and they always work. So let's look at them. We want to minimize disturbance to the soil because after all, we're creating a home for healthy soil biological life. And if you go in there and you rip up the soil, obviously you, you destroy their home and so they're going to die. So that's, you don't want to do that. This uh, informs a lot of the no-till kind of practices that we hear about out there. For the same reasons, we want to keep the soil covered. Gabe Brown calls it uh, an armor on the soil at all times. So wind doesn't blow a road away uh, the soil. The sun doesn't beat down and superheat it and then kill off the soil life. These two things speak to protecting the life within it. We also want to keep uh, a living root in the soil at all times. This is why cover crops are important. Because it is by virtue of this plant growing in the soil, taking energy from the sun and then turning it into exudates and sugars and feeding those into the soil, that's that's how the uh, all that biological life in the soil is fed. So you have to keep, even in the cold season months, you want to keep something growing, some co cover crop of some kind. Uh, doing that, taking the sun's energy and feeding it in, making sure nutrition is getting to your soil life. And then biodiversity, obviously, yeah, you want as many different kinds of plants doing that as possible because they're all going to feed slightly different kinds of exudates into the soil, different profiles of this or that. And one of them, maybe you have a very cold day and some of the plants die, but you've got others there to take the, you know, this is the opposite of monocropping. So we want to maximize biodiversity. And, uh, and then, yeah, integrating animals. Again, for all the reasons I've already enumerated, they are just hugely important to a regenerative, holistic operation. So now, as I said, what happens if we take those same five principles and we think about what does this look like for us, for our greater food transformation, for our emergent food system? So I created these principles of our greater food transformation. One, again, minimize disturbance. And in this case, it means deregulating, I think. Getting all of the things that are disturbing, potentially, our ability to have a local food system and healthy counter-economic activity, getting them out of here. Take away any uh, restrictions. One example of this I like is the, uh, the Wyoming HB 155 that they passed last year after the pandemic had started shutting down meat plants because the law, the federal law says that if you're selling meat to consumers, you have to get it inspected and processed at a USDA approved facility. Well, those were closing down because of the pandemic. And so this is why, unfortunately, you know, millions of animals were cold last year because the pipelines were stopped and there was no place for ranchers and producers to take their animals. Uh, Wyoming alone took the step of saying, okay, this is insanity. This is completely ridiculous. And they opened up, they defined this uh, this opening and they amended the law so that it could happen um, for ranchers and producers to be able to sell meat directly to consumers. They got the government out of the way so that we could continue to feed ourselves. I mean, it's just insane when you step back enough. 
that there's any red tape that would keep us from feeding ourselves, particularly given everything that's going on right now. Um, so there's one example of how I think we minimize disturbance to our local food production. Armor, again, this goes hand in hand, just as it did with the soil, but uh, we want to protect that. We need to codify laws or, uh, you know, any, I, I don't know what this looks like, but one example would be, yeah, laws to help protect our right to grow food. Florida had a, it was called HB 1776, appropriately. It was a law that sadly did not pass, but it said at the state level, uh, look, municipalities and counties, you're not allowed to get in the way of people growing food. And this was after a, uh, there was a couple that had planted a garden in their front yard and the city came along and gave them a ticket and said they had to get rid of it and put grass there because this is a neighborhood. What are you thinking? It has to look good. It has to be grass. So our property values are going, I, you know, who knows what they were actually thinking, what actually motivates this in some technocrat's mind. But, um, but the state, because of the media coverage, floated this law that said, no, you, you just you can't do that. If someone owns property, they're allowed to grow food. And so I think this is an example of the kinds of armor that we need to give our local food systems to protect the, uh, the, the people that are growing, the people that are uh, bringing the food to market, and the, and the consumers for that matter. So we need laws and we need sheriffs to understand the importance of enforcing these laws at the local level uh, to make sure that, again, that, that we have uh, done everything we can to facilitate and get out of the way of local food systems. Feeding and nourishing our food systems. How do we do that? Again, we want to incentivize people to grow their own food. We want to facilitate all this counter-economic activity, whether that takes the form of tax breaks for people that are using their land to grow food or uh, or even for restaurants who are exclusively sourcing from local food. Uh, maybe you give them other uh, incentives to make sure that uh, the local food does have a market, that it's not eclipsed by what looks like cheap food coming from Cisco and big multinational companies. But we already know it's toxic and devoid of nutrition. So this is, we're, we're now making sure that we're going to feed and nourish our local food system. And, uh, you know, I don't have the, all the answers here. I really uh, am open to all of the suggestions. I'll give you my email address here in a second, because I think this is part of the dialogue that we all need to be having right now is how do we, how do we do this? What does this look like? How do we feed and nourish local counter-economic food activity? Biodiversity, I think, is, a, is, a, is another easy one, right? Just as we wanted to have as many different kinds of plants as possible in the ground to make a resilient production, so too should we have different people doing different things. Fortunately, this comes because people are, are awesomely different from each other by nature. But again, if I'm raising chickens, then uh, my neighbor down the street should be, it is actually raising the dairy cows. Neighbor on the other side has alpacas, which are amazing for fur. And um, then someone further down also has chickens. And in this case, if I lose my chickens and a terrible, you know, some bear comes along and destroys the coop, then it's not the end of the world. Humans, and this has been the, again, this is the case since the dawn of time, people do lose crops or, or animals or what have you. And uh, we have to be there for each other. So a diverse, rich ecosystem in our local food environment means we can be there. We can cover for each other when these emergencies do happen. I can get 
more eggs to hatch from my friend down the street and restart, reboot my flock and get back in gear here. This is just a, a natural element of building a resilient food system. And then, yeah, again, integrating animals. Um, yes, not only in our farms, but uh, across across all of these these ideas. And again, given that animal agriculture is under attack, I think the uh, the emphasis here right now is protecting our ability to raise animals. There's some examples in the UK right now where officials, it's called DEFRA, it's like they're USDA in the UK, and they're pointing at massive poultry operations and saying, oh, there was a bird flu outbreak here. And so they're literally going around right now in the vicinity of these poultry operations and gassing people's chickens. And it's tremendously disturbing to me, not just because of the, you know, the obvious, the chickens, but because this is something that humans have done forever. We raise animals, we live with them and they feed us and we feed them and we work together. And to deny people that, to strip them of their animals is just criminal beyond belief. I actually sent the DEFRA agency a FOIA request yesterday demanding to understand how they can possibly justify doing this. We'll see if I hear anything. But um, but the point is, we can't allow this to happen. We have to push back at all levels from the local to the, to the um, federal and anything you can imagine. We must defend. This is, ties back to the armor defend our ability to raise animals and to grow our own food, which is sadly under attack right now. So that was one way of framing this. How do we, uh, how do we create our emergent, regenerative, nourishing, and massively decentralized, robust, resilient food system that will be feeding our families and our children after them and uh, insulating us from these ridiculous fake foods and the agendas they're trying to force down our, our throats right now. Supporting local farmers and ranchers, becoming a local farmer and a rancher, I think is that we should all be doing this. But even beyond just growing food, there are roles for, particularly given the reality that we assessed earlier in this talk where we said we're under attack right now, particularly in light of that, there are roles for people that are in public policy, people that are, you know, lawyers, um, people that are who can fight these onerous regulations and and do some of the things I'm talking about here. Um, there's also plenty of room for you know web developers. When uh, when the pandemic was hitting and a lot of restaurants and schools were closing down, there were farmers who lost their channels to get food to market, and that means. You know, it's, it, you can't just say, oh, I guess it's game over. It means there's a need for people who are web developers to step up and say, hey, Farmer Joe down the street, I'm happy to stand you up a website with a shopping cart or a little CSA interface thing, whatever it is you need to help get your operation running and connect, reconnect the producer to the consumer. Let's get this reconnected. So it's going to take farmer uh, farmers. Yes, we should all be growing food. But, but my point is lawyers politicians, webmasters, I guarantee whatever it is you do, whatever walk of life you come from, whatever unique experiences and expertise you have, I promise you, we need that right now as part of this greater food transformation. Um, I do think that some of the food shortages we'll have in the future here 
will be the catalyst that gets a lot more people thinking critically about food and where we're going here. And when that happens, as it happens, it will be we having this conversation now who are there with seeds that we've saved and chicks that we've raised that we can share with them and baby rabbits, you know, whatever, to uh, to help them get started and do the same thing that we all need to be doing right now. What that means is that you and I are the seeds of tomorrow's victory gardens. That is the greater food transformation. This is the foundation of it. And uh, that food is the you know, the basis for all the conversations we're having this week, the greater reset as a whole. Thank you for joining me and building it. Thank actually, you, Christian. Actually, I can close yeah. one, one more thought, actually. There was a... <laughs> They love you, man. Thank you for that. Yeah, I appreciate that. There was, I just, I saw earlier today a tweet from the UN that said, food is an essential human right. And I thought about that because it, it, it looks good. It sounds good, right? It, we should all eat every day. But there's a catch there. Implicit in the way they phrased that is that this, this right to food means that we have the right to a state, to a, a global state that is aware of all the food we have and all the food people have. And it means we have a right to this state that has a monopoly on force to be able to take food from you and give it to someone else who needs it more in their eyes. And so what the UN is telling us is that we have the right to be slaves. And so we have to reject that. What we have a right to is growing our own food. And ironically, it's that that they're trying to take away from us right now. And so the, this is, I just wanted to make clear that it sounds good. It's a right to food, but no, the way we actually deliver on that promise and make sure that there is abundant food for all of us is this greater food reset. So thank you very much. Thank you, brother. Thank you again. All right. And, and we want to, again, thank everybody who is at home, who's watching all around the world. Please check out Christian's work at Ice Age Farmer. We have all of the links to all of our speakers on our website, thegreaterreset.org. And we've already uploaded day one and day two. The full streams and the individual speakers will do the same thing tomorrow morning for those of you who are waking up in Europe as we're ending. And I just want to say on what Christian was talking about, you know, for me, we, we're, tomorrow we're going to have a tech day where we talk about the liberating side of technology. We'll get into some things like how blockchain can be a helpful tool and encryption and, and digital tools. And we talked a little bit earlier about precious metals and silver. But I want to say for me, I store all of those value, crypto, silver, but seeds are still my favorite currency. And I think that seeds should be, no matter how much you diversify, include seeds in there as part of your, your portfolio. Um, and yeah, with this talk of all the watch parties, we're going to go ahead and show some more watch parties. We had a few people reach out and show us their watch parties. Some of them are with families. We got a... Mother and daughter here. Let's go to the next one. Little family with their dog. People hanging out at home with their pets, too, of course. That's nice. Yeah, this, just watching it with the dog. And uh, we got some more. Yep. Cut, this is, I uh, forget where this one's from, but shout out to everybody there. Thank you, guys. Family watching it. This is our Oklahoma crew. I want to say Lisa there at the bottom of the photo. She's going to be speaking on Friday as part of our uh, how to get your freedom cell activated panel. We're really excited about that. But uh, and I think we got another one, don't we? That John got sent, or is that it? 
Okay, cool. Well, thank you. Thanks, everybody who's sending those in. I'm going to pass it on to John now. We'll get to our last speaker, Jack Spierko. Thank you guys for being here for The Greater Reset. Thanks, Derek. Man, it's super inspiring seeing the pictures of everyone from all across the globe. We really are. We're doing it. This is this is it. This is The Greater Reset, and it's an activation, and we want you to be activated, inspired, and take action because that's what it's all about. Um we got a lot of work ahead of us, but it's a lot of fun work and we're realigning with nature. Uh, before I introduce Jack, I wanted to share an insight that I had listening to the Great Reset podcast today. Yes, there's a Great Reset podcast. And one of the things that I was realizing in preparation for today, we're talking about nature and the environment. Their whole agenda is all about control. And with this stakeholder capitalism, they are aiming to align business not with profit or with benefiting the owners of the company or with benefiting the customers the clients only they want to align with the sustainable development goals that we've heard about and uh rosa corey talked a lot about them and it's not just aligning with them in the podcast the woman was like well how do we make sure that people are actually doing it that's where the whole element of tracking and tracing and controlling comes in. And you can bet your bottom dollar that when it comes to central bank digital currencies, there's also going to be strings attached as well in an effort to manipulate our behavior. So they want to solve environmental problems through cap and trade, carbon tax, tracking, tracing, controlling. We want to deal with environmental problems through decentralization, permaculture, and regenerative agriculture. And I think that's a much better way to do it. You got something, Derek? Derek, he's just, does he know he's on camera? He's just sitting there looking pretty. All right, I'm going to go ahead and uh, introduce old Jack. Yeah, I just wanted to add in. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to add in one quick thing. I just mean to pop in before we bring on Jack that you just reminded me, you know, we're talking again about the activation and I, and I asked, we asked earlier in the Telegram group and online and I'm up asking everybody here who's watching in person, you know, what, what are you taking away from this conversation today? Monday, we talked about the big picture, the Agora economics. Yesterday, we talked uh about you know health and education and all of the things that are connected to that today we're talking about food and seeds and i saw somebody respond to that saying that they're starting a local seed exchange and i just want to throw that idea out to everybody wherever you're coming from that is a great idea starting a local seed exchange with your community and let's keep the conversation flowing listening to marjorie to christian and to jack and thinking about what we can take away from today to get activated going forward thank you john excellent thanks yep and that is what it's all about all right Man, our next speaker is a good friend of mine. He, This guy's done a lot of amazing work, and he is a, a pretty big influencer with the network that he has. And it's he does a podcast, The Survival Podcast, right? TheSurvivalPodcast.com. But it's not just him talking to people. It's not just the speaker and the listener. He's built a really solid community of people, and he's inspired a lot of people. And he's been all about the survival, preparedness, food production, homesteading. But the beauty of this Spearco guy is that he's also hardcore into agorists, not just the philosophy, but he's a practicing agorist. So I think he really exemplifies what it is that we're trying to, to bring about here with the Greater Reset. And we are so honored to have him to close down the day three. Jack Spearco, thank you so much for joining us. John, thank you for for having me uh, on this. I am I'm really honored to be part of this with uh, all these other great people. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Um, I, I when we had the panel, it made me bring a prop in, 
I, w- I just wanted to show you all this as we start, because I'm talking about uh, animals tonight and protein production and things like that. But there's also been a lot of talk about vegetative production. And I, I just want to point out that the thing that I'm holding here, which doesn't fit in the frame, this is a squash. This is the Trumpachino squash that I was talking about as I move it across the frame here. Um, this is grown with the type of fertility that the results of what I'm going to talk about tonight produce. I live on a piece of property where this is not supposed to be possible. Uh, This is not supposed to be a thing that you can grow, but animals grew this. I didn't grow this. Uh, The soil grew this and the animals grew the soil. Anyway, with that in mind, I want to start out with a a quote that I can't properly attribute. I heard it in a documentary years ago. It got stored in the brain, but I didn't store the individual that actually said it. And I haven't been able to track it down. There's many versions of it out there, but it was something to this effect. When one hand gives money to another, the hand doing the giving has the power as it is always held higher than the one receiving. You can imagine and visualize that. And what that's talking about is the influence of money in politics and the influence that money has with power. And all of the people that have talked to you tonight about the problems and talk to you last night about the problems, and the night before about the problems. And we'll talk to you about the problems tomorrow night, and that you'll hear talk about the problems forever and always going out. You'll find the commonality these people use money to control you. And then you use money not actually to control people directly with money, but indirectly with their needs. And there's nothing that we need more than to feed ourselves except to feed our children. And that is the fear that they play on. That If you don't feel you can feed yourself, that's one thing. But if you don't feel you can feed your children, you'll capitulate to anything. So what I'm really talking about tonight is the ability to take your power back by knowing that you can feed your children, by knowing that you can feed yourself, by knowing that you can feed your neighbor so that you won't make the deal with the devil because they're betting that you will. And I just want to set the stage with that because I want to say very little about the problem. There's been enough talk about the problem. I want to give you actionable items, things that you can do. Here's the things I want to cover with you tonight, and it's a lot. I'm going to go quick, but don't worry. At the end, I'm going to give you a resource with over 80 hours of my material for free to tell you how to do the individual things you pick out that you want to do here. I want to cover sources of protein and fat. I want to do that because it's the most nutrient-dense thing you can produce on your own property. I'm going to confine it to chickens, ducks, and geese that I'm going to cover as a single entity quail and fish and i am not anti-rabbit i just knew marjorie would be here and i have no direct experience with rabbits and i try not to talk about things i don't know about my one little pitch for rabbits right now is a lawn a bagging lawnmower and some grass seed and some clover seed you can pretty much feed them off your property so they're and they have a cool manure you can put straight down as fertilizer so they're great for that i want to talk about feeding your stock from your land like christian said it's not just about growing your own food but if you if you have chickens but you just have to now buy chicken feed instead of eggs you're still going to a supplier, right? You're still having to rely on outside inputs. That's okay, but we need to wean ourselves off it as much as we can. We need to think in percentages rather than totality. So if we think in the the mindset with feeding our livestock, and we think in the mindset of, I want to be self-reliant, like, well, that means I can do everything myself. You're going to measure that in time. It's going to run out. Self-sufficiency, we measure in percentages, one of the most important things I'll say tonight. In self-sufficiency, we measure the percentage. And if we can get to where we're producing 50 or 60 or 70% of our animal feed on the property, we're in a pretty good position. We're in a very sustainable, regenerative position. I want to talk just a little bit about breeding your own stock or acquiring stock for free, especially when I talk about fish. Um, 
I want to talk about function stacking by interconnecting systems. I want to talk about why this is going to be critical in the coming decade. I think there's already been a lot of talk about that. I still want to hit it a little bit. And I want to talk about how to keep learning and developing beyond what I can give you tonight. They told me at 45 minutes, I want to cover four particular animal groups and a whole bunch of stuff. So I've got to go fast. I also want to give you five reasons this is important. We've kind of hit this already tonight. I didn't know we were going to have a panel. It wasn't originally planned. But environmentalists really have declared a war on meat and livestock. And it, I actually believe many of them believe in what they're saying. They look at the, uh, the absolute environmental catastrophe that the wastewater alone off of a CAFO is, and they're like, we can't keep doing this. They're right. That doesn't mean the solution is to remove animals from the system. Again, that giant squash, animals grew that, not me. Um, we should expect significant shortfalls in corn, soy, wheat in 2021, perhaps beyond. Um, Christian's covered that well in his work. He mentioned it a lot tonight. But while he was talking, one of my good friends who will be speaking, I think, tomorrow, Nicole Sauce, sent me a text. China just bought 1.8 million tons of corn from us, their fifth largest buy ever, while we're in the middle of shortfalls. Um, not only do we have shortfalls, but we are short-sighted and we're selling our feet away. And you might be thinking, well, I don't eat corn, Jack. Well, if you eat stuff in the grocery store, you do. It's in everything you eat. And if you don't and you eat animal products and you're not producing your own, it's one of the primary feeds to animal products. Um, next, I, I don't want to offend vegans out there. I really don't. But I also am not going to change biochemical facts to, to make people happy. There's nothing, I repeat, nothing infinity that you can produce in your backyard that is more nutrient-dense than eggs and meat. The amount of nutrient in an ounce of liver exceeds pounds of the most nutrient-dense vegetation you can produce. It just does. It, it's just the way things work. And, you, again, you can leave a, live a very healthy life without it, but if it's part of your diet, it is the easiest, it is the best bang for the buck you can get. Um, when harnessed, animal waste streams are the best fertilizer we can produce. Even people that do it and they think they're doing it all with vegetation, you're not. You're doing it with soil organisms manure. You're doing it with plant exudates attracting soil organisms in the soil food web. With larger animals, megafauna, we can, we can increase that rate of reproduction. And instead of having to grow 15 beds of, of a garden to produce one garden bed for us, we can do basically a one-for-one -one exchange there, one for us, one for the animals, and then put the surplus back. I'm going to show you exactly how to do that tonight. And animals can do work for us, and not – not like taking an animal and enslaving it. Their intrinsic characteristics, when properly harnessed, do a lot of things for us. And whenever I talk about this or automation, I always ask this question. What would you do if you didn't have to do it? Or Sepp Holzer put it this way. If you don't want pigs, you have to do the pig's job. So what I want you to think about is how you can harness the animal's intrinsic behavior, the things the animal wants to do. Uh, we're not talking about pigs tonight, but if the pig wants to be a pig... What can the pigginess do for you in the words of Joel Salatin, right? With a chicken, chicken's like the scratch. You put chickens into processing uh, compost, you give them straw, it looks like somebody took scissors and cut it into little pieces. It's amazing what they will do very happily for you. And if you harness the behaviors and you manage the, the thing properly, they can do a lot of the work that you would otherwise have to do for you. I also always want you to ask yourself, how can I make this pay for itself? Here's a quick story. A buddy of mine named David. Uh, like, like me, he's big into aquaculture growing fish. We often used to cycle our systems, these goldfish you buy for like nine cents at like Petco and PetSmart. 
and you you know you give the little the girl that's dipping them out for you an extra five bucks and say hey get me stuff with all got pattern on it so it's pretty people like patterns and then a couple of years later you have this goldfish that's about this big it's really not the best thing in the world to eat but if you put it on Craigslist and call an Asian heirloom carp there's yuppies that'll pay you fifty bucks for it and uh, I I feed about three bags of fish food a year uh, to my fish you can sell one of those and pay for most of your feed so even if you're getting an offsite input can you pay for it. That's just one way to think about this. Koi as well. We put little $2 koi into our systems. They end up this big in a couple of years. There's yuppies that will pay you big money for big koi. I'll just leave it at that. More than you'll ever sell a fish for food for. At least I hope it stays that way anyway. Um, you also need to ask, what are the most time-consuming components and how can I eliminate them? Whatever you're spending the most time on, can you eliminate that without eliminating the result? Does the time and money I'm putting in create an ROI? If you're doing something and it's, you have to look the equivalent here. So no, you're not going to produce eggs from your backyard chickens and ducks for what you could buy them for at Piggly Wiggly. If you buy the cheap, you know, irradiated eggs, but the equivalent, you should be able to do it for less than you could buy it. Or you're only betting on failure. And I'm only doing this because eventually I'll have to anyway. You need to lean things out. These need these systems need to be profitable. Profit's not a dirty word. And of all my systems, what are the most productive and least productive? And you need to do that relative to labor, cost, and production. Never fail to value your own labor in these equations. Of, of the four animal species I want to talk about tonight, or four groups, I guess, chickens, We Marjorie talked about it. We talked about it during the panel. They are amazing critters. They really are. And they have some big advantages going quick through the bullet points on them, they're easy to breed and hatch. Um, I had a little $200 incubator uh, called, made, called Incuview, I think was the, the name brand of it, and you can put 32 eggs in it. I put 32 chicken eggs in it. I got 31 chickens. They said I never count them before they're hatched, but it became pretty evident with the rooster to hen ratio I had that I got almost 100% every time I popped them in there. I don't have any other poultry I've ever hatched eggs from where I get that level of a hatch rate. They're easy to care for. Because there's tons of resources. There's, you know, um, my pet chicken forums and like the, you know, people that have like teacup chickens, right up to like forums and groups that are about real, honest to God stuff like we're talking about tonight and everything in between. There's someone that knows the answer to your problems. That's always great because they're so popular, easy to acquire. They produce meat and eggs. And I'm going to tell you in just a second about how to think differently than a commercial meat producer if you're a backyard chicken raiser. Because a lot of people say, well, you know, chickens are only good for eggs. We raise mostly ducks now, but when we raised chickens, the way I looked at it, we raised chickens and we made hens that made eggs and we ate roosters. And no, we could not make a profit selling roosters for meat, but we made really great meat for our own personal use. They can be fed partially on your own system and your waste streams. You can grow things for them. Most things that you would grow that you would eat, they'll eat. They would definitely eat the squash that I showed you, and they'll certainly eat the seeds out of it. You can grow them barley. You can grow them. You can go to the, the like the feed store or like Tractor Supply, buy the cheapest black oil sunflowers and feed them that, and they're happy. But you can feed them that in a way where what they don't eat grows, and you feed them the result of what grows. There's just so many ways to feed them. You can feed if you find restaurants that will work with you on this. Waste streams. You, uh, Marjorie mentioned about how Austin said that people put up, produce less garbage and food waste if they have chickens. Totally true. And we got chickens. If we went to a restaurant, it didn't matter what was left over. It went in the box. It went home. It went to the chickens. Um, and they're excellent at processing compost. Like I said, the thing about chickens is 
when they get done with something, it looks like somebody went in there and chopped it up. You, you can't really do better. Um, disadvantages, because I always like to point out disadvantages. They require significant control. If you'll eat it, they'll eat it. So what, that, what does that mean when they get in your garden? They'll eat all your stuff. So you have to control them. They can be noisy. And it's not just roosters with their, uh, 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 right? Uh, hens. I've had hens for, I don't even know what's wrong with the bird. It's just out there like, and just on and on and on. So that can be issues with your neighbors. You need to take that into consideration. And there are breeds that are tend to be quieter. So think about that. They may be banned in some areas. So you can either be, you know, a little bit uh, anarcho like I am and figure out ways to do it anyway, find the right place, or you might need to take other uh, choices depending on where you live. HOA Karens tend to not want chickens in the backyards. Um, dual purpose birds exist. They do not produce a high meat ROI. It doesn't mean it's not useful. It just means that it's not the ROI that you'd get from like a Cornish cross. And they will not produce an egg for about 18 to 24 weeks, depending on the breed. This is where I'll give you a couple breeds to think about. If you live somewhere where you have lots of space and your primary concern with chickens is predators eating them, you don't need a huge ROI on your meat. And you're okay with smaller eggs. There's a breed called Egyptian Faomis. These are like the closest thing to a wild bird you can have as a chicken. The, 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 the hens are ugly. The roosters are actually kind of pretty. They're jerks. They're fast. They're hard to keep out of things. Uh, even if you clip their wings, they'll jump up and grab with their beak on a seven-foot-high fence and pull themselves over. I've seen them do it. But, man, if you have the space where you're not worried about free-ranging them and them causing much trouble... Uh, if something can catch one of those, it probably deserves to eat it. They're, they're amazing birds. Uh, we don't raise them anywhere. They can tolerate the heat. They can tolerate the cold. And they will start laying in about 18 weeks. Almost everything else is going to lay between 22 and 24 weeks uh, after it's hatched. will give you its first egg. Most expensive egg you'll ever produce. We call that a feed debt. It's real and you can't ignore it. It's about six months. So that's one thing about chickens. They have a very long feed debt before they start giving you eggs. Because of that, there's an opportunity, though. All problems have solutions, or all problems create solutions. And that, that opportunity is if you raise pullets, which are female chickens, young, chi young birds before they start laying, till they're about 12 to 14 weeks of age, you can generally sell those birds alive for about 25 bucks. It's a few weeks longer than it takes to do a meat rotation for, for profit. Uh, but you can sell them for a little bit more money with a lot less work because you don't have to slaughter it produce, to, uh, to clean it or anything else. So that's also an opportunity. Your methods for chickens, coop and run or coop and dual run. That's where we have a coop and we have a confined area. The beauty in that, and it's if you can do chickens in small yards, it's probably the best way to go. It's not best for the chicken necessarily, but it's best for you. What it does is it keeps the chicken from causing problems, pooping on your porch, pooping on your neighbor's porch, going over the fence and getting eaten by the neighbor's dog, causing all kinds of trouble. Also, with the coop and run model, we can put something overhead, even if it's not a total lockdown, that prevents hawks from coming in and eating your chickens. It's a lot of protection. A double run. Double run simply means we have a coop. We have a run on both sides. Chickens can access one side or the other, depending on when we let them out. What we can do with that now is we can garden on one side, let the chickens on the other do that for about a six-month cycle and keep swapping them. 
This was the original Victory Gardens that they did in the UK and to a lesser extent in the US because we had more land and we weren't being bombed. So it wasn't as intensive. So we had a, our Victory Gardens used to have a garden. In England, this was a very common practice just outside of the cities where the small allotments were of moving the chickens back and forth. There's also what's called a wagon wheel. A wagon wheel is where we have a coop, and generally we do this with a coop in a holding area, like a small run, and we have multiple gates. Those act as what are called paddocks, and that way we can put chickens over here for a couple of weeks, over here for a couple of weeks, over here for a couple of weeks, move them around, as many of them as we have. And it's sort of like free range, but we're confining them to an area. This is better on larger blocks of property. And as we do that, we're able to allow the chickens to graze the land down some, to process things, to add fertility, and then give the land rest before they come back. It's kind of like doing cattle small scale. You can do free range. It's what I do, but I have a very, very small flock of chickens that run with my ducks. They're bantams. They don't cause a lot of trouble. You, you need space to do free range because chickens will over, overuse certain areas and underutilize others, but it's the easiest way. Um, when you want meat from your chicken flock and you want to be able to produce your own birds, either incubate them or let a broody bird bring them up for you, the best thing you can do is just use really large breeds, really heavy breeds, and don't worry that it takes longer for them to become sized large enough to where you can harvest them. Just don't worry about it. You can't think like a farmer who's trying to raise 10,000 broilers and sell them in, a, in, in an eight-week or 12-week cycle. You can't as a backyard producer. It just will not work if you want to be self-sufficient with this. So those birds are going to be like Jersey Giants, Cochins, Orpingtons, Delawares, Brahmas, etc. And this is, you know, we didn't have... Cornish crosses when your grandparents or great grandparents, depending on your age, were around and doing the same thing. This is what they did. You culled your extra roosters at the end of a cycle and you culled your old laying heads. And the older birds you used as stewing birds, you make like what the French call coquevin. And your 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 younger roosters, you use those as your fryers and your frying chickens and use them for other things. And and you can do really well with that. When it comes to, if you want to raise meat, go with Cornish crosses. It's the easiest thing to do. And I know people have a stigma about it. Cornish crosses are not GMOs. They're just a multi-bird cross that grows really fast. Um, people ask me about producing them themselves. Don't don't try. You, you're, it's like raising Quasimodos. They're just not, they're not designed to reproduce themselves. They, they have problems as they get very, very large. Uh, moving on, ducks and geese. Ducks are my thing. I have an entire uh, series called DuckChronicles.com. I think it's four or five seasons of playlists on YouTube of taking ducks from itty-bitty ducks uh, all the way up to, 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 to large adult birds, starting with the day I picked them up at the post office, put them in the brooder. And uh, I, I love ducks. They do a lot for you. Here's their advantages. Moderate moderately easy to breed and hatch you probably will never get 31 of 32 eggs to hatch in an incubator but but they're not difficult they're, they take a little longer to hatch they have about the same time of a feed debt that the chickens do but you can do it they're bulletproof little Mac trucks uh for raising them as far as not having death of your babies once they get out of the brooder once you get them to about three to once the feathers start to come on they are about as bulletproof as a, as, as a tiny animal can get. The meat and eggs are premium. They're an absolute premium product. 
first started here on the little farm we have, we had chickens like everybody else did. We sold eggs like everybody else did. And we struggled to get $3 a dozen for eggs. You can't make money. You can't pay for them. We sell duck eggs at $8 a dozen, and we have a waiting list. I just texted somebody tonight that wanted to buy eggs. I'm like, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I can't help you. I, I really don't have any for you. Um, it's a premium product. It, it really is. The meat is beyond premium. If you gave me a choice, you can eat chicken or you can eat duck. I'm going to pick duck every time. They can be fed from your own waste streams like chickens. They're okay at processing compost. They're not going to do the scratching behavior, but that means they're also softer on the land. They don't scratch up your gardens. They're way easier to keep out of a garden. You have a garden, you put a raised bed in, it's like 30 inches tall, a big deep raised bed. Ducks stay out of it. Chickens go right up and in. So ducks are softer on the land. They don't pull dirt off of your berms. They don't pull dirt off of your trees. Uh, they're just here to deal with uh, all around. Disadvantages, because everything has a disadvantage. They require a lot more water. Ducks and geese need to get their heads wet, minimum. And they really need to get their whole bodies wet. So that means you're going to have to provide them water. If you don't have a large pond for them to utilize, um, and a small pond's bad because they'll skank it up, um, you're going to have to do, like I do kiddie pools or uh, concrete mixing tubs or whatever, and I have to fill a certain number of those every day. But that's another problem solution. We put those things next to trees, and they use them, and we dump them. We irrigate and fertilize the trees in one go. Uh, they have that high feed debt ratio. Again, about 22, 24 weeks before they produce first egg. They, will, they do require control. They will eat mostly what you will eat, so they will eat your gardens. Uh, they can be noisy as well, especially all the mallard species, right, which every duck except the Muscovy duck is a mallard species. The quacking is loud. It's obnoxious. Uh, we love it. We live out in the country. We can do it. But in a backyard, it may be a problem. So you might want to look at Muscovy ducks for that because they're quiet. Your best layers in ducks are the worst meat birds you will ever have. There's almost no meat on them. They're, they're going to be your 300 layers or your khaki camels. So you want to go with heavy breeds for meat production and just accept you're going to get less eggs. We run when we run. We don't really do commercial anymore. We only sell a little bit anymore. But we used to run about 150 birds on our three acre property. And we ran mostly 300 layers. And there was nothing that could outproduce them on eggs, but they were a lousy meat bird. Geese are great. They go great with ducks. The best bet is to raise goslings with ducklings, and then they get along really, really well, and they protect each other. Um, but they only lay and breed about 60 days a year. You only get about 40 to 60 eggs from a goose a year. That means they're expensive. If you're buying goslings, they're limited availability. And you will find they are not as reliable with, with hatching and reproduction as, as ducks are. Uh, Muscovies, I've mentioned them. They only lay about 180 days a year. And, and they go in a cycle, kind of like two, two mega goose cycles. But they'll give you about 120 eggs in that period. So they're a pretty good bet. If you want them for meat, here's my advice. If you have dedicated layers, small body breeds, Indian runners, don't even try to use them like a typical meat bird. Just debone, debreast, et cetera, and make sausage. Mix them with pork at about a 50-50 ratio, and duck sausage is gorgeous. And don't forget to use the hearts and livers when you do that. If you want dedicated meat birds or birds that are really good dual purpose, go with large breeds of mallard duck strains. Those are Peckin, Saxony, Silver Apple Yards, Cayugas, anything that's a large breed. Um, geese, geese are one of the greatest potential backyard meat production systems you can have. 
people always talk about how geese are mean. We have, have a whole kind of agorist thing going on. Myself, John, Nicole Sauce, and some other folks, we call it the Unloose the Goose because geese have that reputation. But when, when, when raised properly, they're pretty agreeable critters. And they're actually like an avian cow. You can take a gosling, and after about two weeks of protection, you can have that bird maybe in like a tractor out on, on, on grass, so it's a small controlled cage system. And you can take a goose to about 12 pounds in 11 weeks, almost 100% on grass. That is amazing. And again, it's a premium meat product. So it's definitely something to consider. But again, you got to get kind of specialized if you want to be reproducing your own geese. They're great mothers. That's where they turn into complete jerks. When they breed, you have to have a plan to separate them from your other livestock. I've seen geese near kill chickens and ducks when they're nesting. So you have to have kind of a plan for that. Otherwise, they're amazing. Uh, you're Probably your best self-reproducing meat system in a backyard is a Muscovy duck. They are, I call them marvelous Muscovies. They're essentially tame, wild animals. If you go down to the southern tip of Mexico and into Central America where they're indigenous and where they live in the wild, and you go back in the swamps where they're up in trees, they look exactly like the ones at your park, unless you're looking at like the blues and the whites that have been selectively bred. Uh, so they are incredibly adaptable. They taste more like beef than poultry. They are amazing producers of fat. Duck and goose fat in general is an incredible uh, fat resource. And if you're at a point where you're doing all small livestock, poultry are your way to fat because that skin holds the beautiful fat that humans need as a key point of their nutrition. The male Muscovies produce a massive amount of beef per bird. One half of a breast of a male Muscovy drake at, at about nine months of age will easily feed a family of four. That, that's the kind of meat yield you're getting off. They're twice the size of the females. And they're the ones that you're going to want to call at the end of your cycle. Uh, and broody mothers, uh, uh, Muscovies, uh, they're incredibly good mothers. They do just a fantastic job, and they'll raise anything. They'll literally, you can put duck eggs under them uh, from, from other duck species. You can put chicken eggs under them. Uh, we've, had, we've had Muscovy ducks raise baby chickens. It, it's pretty awesome. Uh, I want to move on to quail. I'm going to go real fast through quail because I want to talk a little bit about fish before we wrap up. Um, quail, to me, are probably the best thing for the most people. I know a gentleman who produced 1,200 coals for me and 15,000 eggs a year from a one-car garage in Michigan, a single stack of about four foot by two foot. Not quite the way I want to do it, but it shows what can be done. They can be raised indoors. They can be raised in an air aviary. Some people do manage to tractor them, basically with portable cages with large holes that keep the birds inside because moving quail in, in a, a tractor situation is very difficult. Um, they're easy to hatch and brood your own stock from. Very easy to hatch. They hatch, I think it's an 18-day cycle. You can clean a bird. I've done this. I have a video showing how to do it with a dove. Um, but you can clean a bird with no tools in under 60 seconds. Just basically take them apart. That's, that's slaughter and clean. That's, that's something I don't know another animal you can do that with. It, it, it's something that like you have to be mentally prepared to do it, but the fact that you can do that means that you can easily feed your family with eggs and meat with a quail system. Um, they grow from a little bitty thing about the size of a golf ball when they hatch to big enough to process in six weeks. And that's not some special variety. That's your standard Courtney Japanese quail. 
they have a very high feed conversion rate. So the amount of feed you give them to the amount of meat they produce is, is, is really in your favor compared to everything else we're talking about tonight. They're a potential profit center. They're a premium product. People pay a premium on them. They'll pay way more than they will for chicken. Quail eggs are incredibly profitable. If you sell them at half the retail price, you're still making money. Versus if you're selling chicken eggs at a retail price, you're losing money hand over fist. And a ton of your care can be automated with them. The gentleman I talked about in Michigan, I have a podcast with him that'll be in the resources link I'll give you at the end. And um, he could leave his house for a week and come back and everything was fine. That's what he had about a seven day cycle from the last time you check on him to when he needed to come back and put more food and more water into the system. Disadvantages. You're going to have to buy feed a significant part of their diet. You can only grow so much for them. I heard tonight about growing microgreens for them, and I, 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 I'm just saying that people saying that, yeah, you can. Yeah, they'll eat it. Yeah, they'll be happy, but they can't live on it, just flat out. Roos do make it. Roos are the males in quail. They do make an obnoxious noise. It's like a ah, like that. Um, it's not that loud. If you had them in a garage, your neighbor probably wouldn't hear them, but it, it is a sound that is people think they're just going to be quiet like, uh, I don't know, a dove or something. They, they can be loud. Um if you raise them in cages indoors instead of an aviary, they produce a lot of waste and you're going to have to manually deal with that with some sort of slide pan or something like that. So you need to have a system for it. It's a great resource, but it's manual labor. Um, some people won't eat them. People ask me, why don't you raise them anymore? My wife won't eat them. I'm not raising them for just me. So some people just, I think they taste like little chickens, but some people won't do it. You need to make sure they will. You know, back to rabbits. People talk about rabbits. My best friend in the world is a guy named Nick Ferguson. He loves rabbits. He's like the rabbit genius. And he's like, if you want to get into rabbits, go buy a rabbit from somebody that raises them. Take it home, kill it, and eat it. And make sure you can do that before you get into them. I'd say in a lot of places that's good advice. Free-ranging, paddocking, stuff we talked about with other critters, not an option. And they're good for making compost material, but they are... um, they're not good processors. It's not like like with chickens or ducks where you can give them something to work for you. They they really don't do that. They're kind of a, a one-hit wonder. Now, my big thing that I want to hit you tonight with, fish and aquaculture. Um, I have always had a dream to have like a two-acre lake in my backyard. And we bought this property, two acres, wasn't going to happen, but maybe a half acre. Turns out my property has about that much topsoil and the rest is slab rock and it's really not in the cards. But yet I've built a, a, a large group of ponds. I, I've, built, I've built ponds uh, out of timber frame. I've built ponds out of stock tanks. And I've been able to raise fish. When it comes to fish, local fish are the best. They're basically free. If you acquire wild local stock, it's infinitely sustainable. You can go down to your farm pond and get stock. You can easily grow almost all the food yourself. They can go for a long time without any feed. And you shouldn't be feeding them in the winter. Almost everyone eats fish in some form or another. If you fry it, somebody will probably eat it for you. Water gardens are food uh, that people don't see as food. So if somebody comes, if people are worried, people like come take your garden or whatever. People see a pond, they don't really understand. They can't just go grab the food. Um, water gardens are generally HOA friendly. The, the 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 person looking over the fence and complaining doesn't really complain about your 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 uh, your system like that. And water itself is a survival need. More, more water is better. Um, the disadvantage requires a pond. You got to have it. So that's that's something that does have some limits. 
It works best with multiple ponds, so that might be a financial limitation. Winter freezes can be an issue in some climates. I say go deep, but there's points where no matter how deep you go, you got to have volume as well for it to work. And most of the time, it's going to require energy on the smaller scale like I have. I have timers and solar, et cetera, can, can mitigate that. But you're going to have to have pumps or, or air pumps, something like that. And if you get it wrong, you can have massive die-offs. But there's a lot of ways to do this. Go to Craigslist. You can find free above-ground swimming pools. Turn that into a backyard pond. Stock tanks, the timber frame ponds I'll show you a picture of in a second. In-ground in ponds that are natural are best if you can do it. Um, right now, though, to understand how valuable this is from the ability to feed your livestock, I run three large systems and various small ones. In that, I feed 150 pounds of food a year. That costs me about 50 bucks. And I grow a ton of food for my fish, and I grow a ton of food for us from this. Um, minnows are grown in smaller protected tanks. Feed my fish those. Shrimp are grown in smaller tanks, and I feed them that. The little um, fish from the pet trade called Neocardania. They're actually very expensive. Uh, you could probably build a business on those alone. Uh, sell them to people that are more concerned with pretty things in their fish tanks than they are uh, feeding things. Um, baby goldfish. So I grow goldfish right in with my large systems. They reproduce. The other fish eat the babies, just like in nature. It's a perpetual ongoing thing. I don't. I literally don't do anything. The fish, the goldfish live off algae and, and plankton. Um, insects from natural interactions. We put lights over the ponds. The insects come in. The fish eat them. Uh, the, it's a trap type situation. Um, and the beauty of this is there's no refrigeration necessary. We only harvest fish as we need them. Harvesting and processing is very quick per meal. And my overall goals, I'm not quite there yet, but I want to get to a point where we can provide one meal a week from fish, just one meal a week. That's one fiftieth of you know all our meals. Um, the fish, I'm trying to get them to where they breed and reproduce on their own. I am getting fish locally mostly, so it's pretty easy to go down to a farm pond, throw a handful of corn in, throw a cast net twice, and bring home 200 perch. And I'm hoping my systems will continue to produce fertility. I want to actually jump now and, and share my screen for a minute here and just do a few pictures here at the end, if we can get that done from the producer there. All right. So I talked a lot about function stacking, and I don't know that you guys can see my cursor, but in the center you'll see a, a structure called a duck house, and that's what it sounds exactly like what it is. It's a duck house. This is a system I'm building right now. Um, that's where the ducks go to bed every night. Just uh, above it is a compost pit. And we are going to be filling that compost pit with a plant called water hyacinth. And you'll see a rectangle just to the left of that. That's going to be a 8 by 16 foot pond, fairly low to the ground. And those lines around the outside are fencing. And so if you look where that arrow points, uh, that's a pipe coming from another the other square that's to the right. That's actually a duck bathtub. It's at a higher elevation than the pond. That can be drained every day, the duck bath, with all the duck poop water into the pond, which grows the water hyacinth with the duck's love. And the water hyacinth has a protein content higher than soy. So it's, it, it's a great free resource to feed the ducks. We throw it right into the compost pit. It makes fertility for the plants. The pond overflows to those structures that you'll see uh, to the left of there. Uh, those two structures are swales, and they they fertilize trees, and they grow crops on the inner swale, which is the space between the pond, the swales, and each other. So we're going to be able to grow 
three to four cycles of millet to feed the ducks with a year, plus one cycle of barley a year in that area of about a third of an acre. That's going to be a massive amount of feed that we're able to feed those birds. And you can see from the duck bathtub, you see those two other trees that marked as willows. Okay, so we don't need to be dumping that excess wastewater into that pond every day. So we're also going to grow willows because my wife likes willows. And that, that's about all I can cover with that system today. I'm actually going to be putting a longer version of this presentation up on YouTube and my Odyssey channel uh, in the coming weeks where I go deeper into some of this stuff. But now I want to give you is some visuals because they say a picture is worth a thousand words. And for some reason, it doesn't seem to want to change. That's a channel catfish that was a fingerling eight months before that picture was taken. And he's not big enough for me to harvest yet. I like him a little bit bigger than that. Because when they're a little bit bigger than that, you could stake them, and they're just easier to process. But uh, So he got moved from a small pond to a bigger pond. Um, here's one of my Miyagi ponds, we call them. Uh, my buddy David named them that because when he looked at him, he said they look like something from the Karate Kid movie in Mr. Miyagi's backyard. This is the day we built this. and You can see the shelving because the water is still crystal clear. We just filled it. That shelving is built on top of cinder blocks that create structures for the fish. And you see a the lady that's pretty tired from her day of on the side and the, uh, the other lady in the aqua shirt, there's a 100-gallon uh, stock tank sunk in there with holes in it. That's a fish kindergarten. That's where baby fish can retreat so they're not consumed, so they don't all go down at once. And it's also where you can put fish that kind of need a break. This is what they look like from a distance once they begin to grow in. So this is a few weeks after that first picture was taken where it's stained. And you can see what I mean about how these will fit right into an urban situation uh, and just look really, really beautiful. I prefer them a little bit lower to the ground, but again, here we can only dig so deep. And that's just a box built out of four by fours, bolted together with structural wood screws and lined with an EDP, EDPM pond liner. That all in was about a $2,000 project. And it is uh, 4,400 gallons of water. It's absolutely gorgeous. And it produces a ton of food for us. This is a system built with simple 470 gallon, six foot round stock tanks. And this particular tank here is overflowed from these three oval tanks that are just above it. And there's a third one of those um, round tanks lower yet, and they all cascade into each other. What this does for me, this actually gives me the ability, these three tanks here all grow primarily minnows and shrimp that are fed to the larger fish. And they, they also produce duckweed, which are fed to the ducks. And this is, I want you to understand the ecological impact of water in the landscape. There's no surface water within five miles of my house. And yet these guys showed up because of those little steel tanks all by themselves. This, this is the biggest one we have here. We call him Fred the Frog. And if you have frogs in an ecosystem, you have an ecosystem that is on the right track. It's one of the key indicator species. But here's something more important. This is my grandson catching fish out of one of my fish tanks. Now, that guy's pretty good size right there. That's a, a local species. Uh, red breast sunfish, they're awesome to eat. They taste delicious. That one went back. Uh, but having your, your, your kids or your grandkids able to enjoy this, look at the, look at the biomass of the plants growing out of the plant, just uh, out of the pond, just to the left of his hand there. That's all, that's actually a hundred percent edible, except for the one is a water iris. That's a water celery. There's water chestnut in there. But even if we were only feeding that to ducks or using it, for fertilizer it's amazing and so i love having my kids able to be involved or my grandkids being involved this is my granddaughter finding one of our duck eggs guys this is why you're doing this 
not only are these kids learning from this, I know what they're they're eating. I know what they're doing every day when they're here for their homeschooling, et cetera. This is, this is what you're really building this for. And I, and I want to say a little bit about meat-based diets because we talked about how there's a war on livestock and supposedly livestock's destroying the planet and meat's not healthy for you. I lived as an omnivore for most of my life. And I ate a lot of starches and other things like that, even though I kind of knew better. This is less than a year apart, these two pictures. That's my wife and I at our favorite place in Florida in July of 2019. The other picture is a selfie of me in a mirror. Not that I do that very often, but that's February of 2020. So that's eight months. Look at the difference here. This is what eating this type of food does for you. This is how it restores human health. And I know I kind of blew through this because I wanted to cover so much with you guys tonight. But let me, let me just give you this here. This is all you need. If you write down that URL, if you're watching this sometime in the future on the archive, you can go to the survivalpodcast.com forward slash reset. And I have over 80 hours of material that tells you how to do all of this available to you. You can just have at it. Um, and if you go there right now or in the next day or so, it'll either be at the top. It'll be one of the first two or three posts. It's, it's, it's up there right now. I checked before we did this. And there's my social media where you can connect with me. I've moved all to alternative social media, Odyssey, Float, MeWe, et cetera. Um, you can you can jot that down. We'll leave that up for just a second for you to, to get that. And uh, I, I just want to say at this point, uh, John, Derek, thank you for having me. I probably, probably went a little bit over, uh, but I wanted to cram as much things people can do into this. And I don't know if we have any time left, but I'm happy to handle any questions or anything like that. All righty. OK, well, I'm producing now, too, because I think they're having an Internet outage over there. So, OK. Hey, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, while we have you, uh, why don't you share your view of the Great Reset? What do you think it's all about, and why do you think it's important that we kick it up a notch when it comes to responding? Uh, just before I do, I don't know why, but my screen of the uh, the back end won't come up. Do you guys see me? Am I good on your end? As long as that's okay, I'll just go ahead from there. Yeah, yeah, you're good. Okay, so I don't need to see myself. So. My view on the Great Reset is, is simply they've gotten to a point where either by design or by happenstance, they have a windfall, I think is the way they look at it. All of a sudden, all the things they've been working for, they went full tilt boron because they could. This COVID crisis created an opportunity that it's absolutely irresistible to them. And, and due to that, they 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 just took advantage of it. Like, this is not new. This goes back, I think, like, the, the first iteration of it that came out publicly was, like, 2014, but it was kind of in the background. They didn't really do much with it. And when COVID hit, it was like, holy crap, look what they'll do. We can, we can tell them they have to stay home, and they'll stay home. We can give them a few bucks, and they'll feel like we bailed them out. They can, we can tell them to wear masks, and they'll all run around. We have people driving around wearing masks in a car by themselves. Like the, I don't even think they understood how successful their programming of the human mind had been. This is why I say, get your kids the hell out of the school system. Like, and when people say they can't, like if your kid was in a building on fire, you would put a wet blanket over your head. You would charge through the door and you'd get them out. Treat it like that because this is a direct result of decades of this indoctrination. That's what this is all about. What this is, if I wanted to sum it up, in a few words, it is domestication of the human species. 
If you want to domesticate an animal, you separate it from its mother, you feed it, you make it dependent on you, and the most wild of animals becomes docile and controllable. That's exactly what they're doing to us. That's exactly what the agenda is. And I know that sounds kind of tin hat or conspiracy or whatever, but all you got to do is look. When you got people running around wearing masks, and the latest guy says, well, maybe you should wear two masks. <laughs> and people actually... Uh-oh. It makes me weep for society. John, but it also makes me realize there are people so in that matrix, I can't fix it. And all I can do is work with the people who have at least unplugged. Maybe they're still controlled, but they at least are aware of the situation. And, and I think that's what it's really all about. And I know that sounds doom and gloom, but I actually think it's very hopeful. Because the fact there's so many of us that accept that, right? You can't fix a problem until you accept you have one. Guys, accept it. This is the problem we have. Right on. All right, Jack. When I just want to thank you so much. I've been watching the comments, and people are blown away by the uh, the quality of the information that you have to share. Again, the website is thesurvivalpodcast.com, thesurvivalpodcast.com. And I was checking out your reset uh, post that you have there. That's a wealth of knowledge that would be a great place for folks to go if they wanted to get some of the info that you've been sharing. So. Thank you again, Jack, for for joining us and sharing all this information. Yeah, man, no problem. Like you said, with that resource that I put up, again, just go to the site. Uh, just the duck videos alone is 144 duck videos. So uh, if you want to know how to do something, it's there. All right, my favorite agorist duck farmer. Thanks for joining us. You take care. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen. Wow, that was great. I think Ramiro and Derek are having some issues, so hopefully they'll join us. I'm just going to spiel a little bit and close this down, and hopefully we can say goodbye to Derek as well. Man, food production is absolutely critical. We can't survive without it, yet so many people are dependent on external systems and inst institutions. More often than not, those systems are centralized, thus making them much more vulnerable. So everyone's like, what are we going to do? I feel overwhelmed. I feel burdened by what's happening. I feel powerless, right? One of the easiest things, it's not easy, but one of the best things that you can do is start growing your own food. It doesn't have to be 100% self-sustaining, right? Or even 50%. That's a great noble goal to get 50% of your food from local food production systems. But like I said before about the parenting, if you were tuned in yesterday, you know, this is completely dependent on the grocery store, right? And this is totally off-grid. Just start working your way this way. And a lot of the stuff that we heard today is great information. <laughs> he came, he went. So yeah, food production, just uh, go out and do it because it's important for us to not be dependent because we know that they are going to try to manipulate behavior to get people to do things that they don't want to do. And a great way to get started with food production, besides all the resources we heard today, is through the Freedom Cell Network, freedomcells.org. Great story, Lisa Bowman, whom we're going to hear from on Friday. She's with the Tulsa, Oklahoma Freedom Cell. She hosted a little gardening blitz, right? There's this concept called a perma blitz where you get your friends together and do permaculture projects and stuff. She did this in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and she invited her local inner cadre group, approximately eight people working together on common goals. 
and they knocked out a whole garden on the side of her house. She said that would have taken her three or four days. They did it in one evening, had some dinner and some drinks afterwards. And that's really what the Freedom Cell Network is all about. It doesn't have to be big and scary and edgy and risky. It's like, let's get together. Let's grow some food. Let's pull our kids out of school and let's find freedom in our lives. All right, there we go. Take two with old Derek Rose. Uh-oh, he's muted. You're muted on StreamYard. Let me unmute you. You got to unmute yourself, buddy. Freedomcells.org. Thegreaterreset.org. All right. Uh, I think you just need to mute yourself on StreamYard. So we'd like to close out with Derek. So I guess I'll just share some stuff. You know, you can check out Derek's work at theconsciousresistance.com. Theconsciousresistance.com awesome activism, agorism, and there's a conscious spiritual element which is missing in a lot of places. We heard from uh, Sawyer and Kelly, and they were really talking about the spiritual relationship that you have with yourself and those around you. And Derek's got a lot of great work there. If you appreciate what I have to say, you can check out my podcast at livefreenow.show, livefreenow.show. Today we heard from the Ice Age Farmer, Kristen Westbrook, and we heard from Marjorie Wildcraft, thegrownetwork.com. Christian, uh, Christian Westbrook's site is iceagefarmer.com or theiceagefarmer.com. And of course, Jack Spierko's is thesurvivalpodcast.com. All right, let me check and see what they're saying here, my good friends. All right, we're just going to go ahead and close it out. So again, this is the Greater Reset Activation. Emphasis on activation. The whole point is to offer a contrary narrative to the World Economic Forum. They are, they're right. There's a lot of problems in this world. And their idea is let's get everyone all freaked out. Let's get everyone all worked up and let's roll in with some solutions that are based on centralization, manipulation, mass surveillance, right? And some would argue that maybe they made a lot of this stuff happen. Some of these problems we're experiencing, right? Whether the virus is from a lab. Some people are like, there's not even a virus. Who knows at the end of the day? But what I do know is that there are a lot of opportunists in the predator class and the parasitic class, and they are pouncing on this opportunity to roll out a pretty dystopian view of the future. And it's up to each and every one of us, each and every one of us that's tuned in today and all of your community and family and friends. You don't have to be totally awake. You don't have to dive into all the research or be totally in the know. But many human beings have that little feeling that something's off, something's not right. And so what we're bringing you with The Greater Reset is some solutions, some practical strategies that you can take in your life in order to create more freedom in your life and in order to radiate that positivity, that liberty, that freedom, that abundance, that joy, that harmony, internal harmony, harmony with your fellow human beings and living in a harmonious way with nature and the earth around you. That's what it's all about. But it's not just listening to it on a YouTube video or a stream at the website or DLive or wherever you're watching. It's about doing. It's about action. It's about activation. All right. So tomorrow we have a great day lined up for you. We're going to be talking about technology, the liberating, the liberating side of technology, encryption, 
blockchain, how decentralized applications can be used for social governance or social organization, as I like to say, you're definitely not going to want to miss that. And finally, we're going to wrap it all up on Friday, talking about community solutions, decentralization, the Freedom Cell Network. We got a lot more to come, ladies and gentlemen. We're just barely getting started because we're going to be doing another greater reset in May. And we're going to stay in touch with all you guys. Be sure to check out the social media channels, the Telegram channel, the Telegram group. This is John Bush. I'll go ahead and sign out for me and Derek. Peace and freedom. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. <laughs>